Apart Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from riffhard.com and Monuments. My co-host is A.L. Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E. M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A-L Levy U-R-M Audio. And that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is someone that I have known forever. His name is Carter Arrington, and some of you may have heard him. Some of you probably haven't because, you know, I know that you guys primarily are into guitar players that play in heavy styles, but this is somebody that I've known for 23 years who... I've known as a guitar player for that long too. And uh, he has schooled me the entire time. He's always been one of the very, very best. And as far as rhythm goes, I think that this guy has probably some of the best feel I've ever seen or heard in my entire life. Like when, when he plays by himself, it literally feels like you're listening to an entire band. It's nuts. And uh, and the fucker can shred his ass off. So there's a lot to learn from this guy. This guy is music. I present you Carter Arrington. All right, Carter Arrington, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you for having me, Al. Lovely to meet you, mate. Lovely to meet you, John. I was just watching a, a video of you. Uh, I confess I didn't do any homework until five minutes before that. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I watched your video of uh, your your EMG playthrough of iCreator. Ah, uh, yes. That's the one. <laughs> devastating. Right Thank hand you. is devastating. Fantastic. Lots of uh, activities as a child. That's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> Starting at the age of 12. Uh, around that age, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> it's a confusing age, man. It's a good time to get into music. <laughs> Not only did I start guitar at that age, but I started something else too. Well, yeah? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> hence the power, hence I guess. Hence the power, yeah. <laughs> Endurance, all of it, I don't know. Well, like I was telling both of you, but I guess I should say it, on here is, uh, I mean, we're going to talk about this, but for people who don't know, like Carter and I have known each other for a long fucking time now, like since 1997 or whatever. But um, reason I wanted to bring you on, I mean, you're a great guitar player and always have been, but the thing specifically is that uh, you were the first great rhythm guitar player that I had ever met. And you're the person who basically enlightened me as to how important feel 
and rhythm is, even though like when I met you, you were kind of into metal. You got out of that pretty soon thereafter. You didn't stick in the metal world too long and you were doing it in funk, which I don't know if you still do that stuff, but man, that funk rhythm playing, in my opinion, is some of the hardest shit I've ever seen in my life. Anytime I tried to do it, I was like, what the fuck is going on? And I could do the metal stuff, but I'd see you play the funk stuff and be like, this is moving at the same speeds. Like there's the same amount of motion going on, but like the amount of muting and just everything to it is just so foreign to me, but it's so intricate that this is some real shit. And I almost feel like, uh, when you think of, at least in the metal world, when you think of great riffers, you don't, they don't necessarily always think about that style of guitar playing. And I feel like it's something that they could really, really incorporate because for instance, you have motion going the whole time. And it's more about muting and knowing when, when to let the chords or the notes sound and when not to, but you still got motion going the whole time. So I thought it would be appropriate First of all, just because you're a great guitar player, but second of all, just because of that specifically, it would be appropriate to have you on here. And I wanted you to meet John just because, you know, we all know that John's like one of the best rhythm guitar players in metal. So I felt like it would be cool to get your minds talking about this stuff. <laughs> Love it. Uh, yeah, man, the muting thing is, uh, yeah, it's it, like it's weird. I think when I started playing, uh, when I started playing out a lot in Austin after I got out of college, because um, I got out of school and just kind of fell into work because both those things were kind of happening at the same time. I didn't I like I got out of playing more funk music because there was less of it there. But that uh, it, like even as 10 years kind of went by and I was I got there around 03. But as you know, it was about 10 years went by, you started to see younger musicians influences kind of coming into the stuff that was around town. So like, uh, I was having to use those techniques and kind of having to, to dust them off a little bit. And these days it's kind of funny. Like I've been thinking a lot about it lately since I've had a lot of time in this quarantine. <laughs> I, I don't know if you guys ever feel like this, but I feel like my playing right now as I'm fucking with shit and changing some things around, I feel like I've taken apart an entire car in the garage and it's just like, <laughs> it feels scattered all over the place just because I'm thinking about new shit that I'm changing things. Uh, but muting is definitely one of them. And I remember, uh, I remember seeing great bass players and noticing how, how their pocket was so different between each other. You mean between bass player to bass player or bass player to guitar player? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Between bass player to bass player. Okay. thing I don't think I understood for years, but eventually started to notice was it was like, man, it was the duration of the note. It was when they were cutting it off. And that was like, like just my head exploded. Yep. <laughs> and man, it was a similar concept to, uh, like, I don't know. I had a, I had like a brief stint of messing with like fingerstyle guitar. I was really into Michael Hedges and I'm um, still into Michael Hedges. I think he's an amazing musician or was ama an amazing musician, but I got this book of transcriptions of, of his in between all the parts, there'd be these, there'd kind of be these red highlighted lines on the tab. And so I'm sitting there looking at it, I'm like, man, what the hell is this? And that, that was him intentionally ringing certain voices and stopping and starting them. So he'd say like, oh, okay, this melody note's going to last for a quarter note, or this is going to last for a dot. And just, it was a level of control 
that I never knew was, it was just, it was mind blowing. That's kind of actually quite similar to how I got into it as well. Like for me, the the biggest sort of that, you know, I'm just saying the poof moment was actually, uh, I've said this multiple times before, it's actually uh, Victor Wooten's Groove Workshop. And one particular line where he says, the music isn't the notes, it's the space between them. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of when that sort of popped off and it made me be able to understand things more. And I was a huge fan of Michael Jackson growing up. And you just go on YouTube and listen to his solo vocal parts and you'll see the same sort of intricate motion of some of those players that you've mentioned. Like it's not the notes or the that he's singing. It's it's all the little nuances, like the the breathing is always part of the performance and the noises that he makes are always in time and part of the performance. And it's 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 pretty fascinating what people can can do without, you know, if without the understanding there, it just sounds like they're playing the notes, but it goes way deeper than that. And it's uh once that sort of clicks, it's like, ha, I can try and incorporate that. And then you get this really cool sense of rhythm that you didn't have before. And something that blows my mind is it doesn't matter what style of music that it is, there's there's there can be that level of um intention. Like it's all rhythmic, it, it, it's just paramount rhythmic intention and control. And like Michael Jackson's got it in his vocals, all the rhythm guitar parts on any of those songs, yeah. there was some of the most devastating rhythm players out of LA and, you know, whoever, you know, wherever it was that they recorded it, I assume it was all there, um, but off the wall thriller. and I think it was actually New York because it was done at Hit Factory, wasn't it? Well, his vocals were. Yeah, yeah I just, uh, I know like, I know he had, I guess it was the Neverland studio, right? It was, it was the one he had at his house. And um, I'm just thinking about the dinosaurs, <laughs> the roller coasters. <laughs> Sorry. But I think uh, I read somewhere, I think it was in Bruce Sviden's book. I'm probably messing up his name, uh, who was, I guess, one of his main engineers for years. But he said that they did like the version of Billie Jean that they went with was like, that was after 80 other versions of that song. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> they produced 80 other versions of that tune. I'm not surprised. Something interesting on but off topic, but about the 80 versions. Uh, so I spoke to Sylvia Massey yesterday. She's sick, by the way. Yeah. she She's like, you know, she's a legend. And uh, she used to work with Rick Rubin. And she was telling me that Rick Rubin would make bands write 300 songs for an album. So normally you hear like bands will write like 30 songs and pick 10. He would make them write 300 songs. Like I didn't realize that 300 songs of which they'd record 20, pick 12 or something, but 300. So, and then the proof is in the results that so many of his records did great. So when I hear that, a song like that, that the Michael Jackson song that, you know, is a classic decades later, it doesn't surprise me at all that there's that many versions that they went through. It just, it just seems like people that operate at that level, it's, it happens one of two ways. Either it comes out in one go, just like a lightning bolt, just boom, somehow it's all done super fast or they do 80 versions 
and then somehow carve it into greatness. It, I feel like it's one or the other. Can you imagine how much money was spent on tape? <laughs> Man. <laughs> Not a fraction of how much money came back in, though. That's a good point. That's actually a very good point as well. Imagine, imagine the session players on that song as well. After making it, it it's not it's not like they've played it 80 times. At that point, they've probably played it about 8,000 times. You'd probably lose your mind a little bit, wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, maybe, I mean, and I'm kind of curious what uh, Quincy Jones's process was. Like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious what it was like in a session. I've really always wanted to see the score to that record. Cause like the more I've listened to it, the more I hear little parts yep. in there. And I'm just like, Oh shit. After 20 years, I never heard that little high part in this tune. And just, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's so much hiding in there, but, um, but yeah, I'm kind of, I'm, I, you know, I'm curious what his process was. And if, you know, if he just kind of crawled through it or if they just kept taking take after take after take. Did he arrange it too? I have no idea. I know Rod Temperton did some, but yeah, I don't know. There's, there's more I could probably stand to research, but. The one song that I've always been fascinated with, with uh, MJ is Who Is It? Because I've tried playing it and I just can't. Play so it. I don't know that song and I'm looking it up on YouTube right now just so I know what the what? fuck you're talking about. What? Yeah, well, look, look it up real quick so we it's, know what the hell John's talking about. It's on Dangerous. I'm looking it up. Michael Jackson, who is it? Official video. Hold on, I just want to hear a second of it just so that I know. So you're definitely not talking about the synth part that you tried to play. No, it was more just the groove of it. It was really, even though it's on bass, it's really, it's really... Oh, yeah. Man, that little ghost note on three. Yeah, it's so sick. It's just that little, those tiny little things in there that just make it, I don't know, like something can be in time, but it's something that, that makes it, makes you move, man. Exactly. It's like, it's the com like the combination of how the drums sound and the bass sounds, but it's like, it's the little gaps going on in between everything that's making it sort of push in this really cool groove. And I've never been able to replicate it at all. Really? No, just in general. Like I've tried replaying this grooving on guitar, playing it on bass, and I just can't do it. There's something really cool about it. And it's just the way, well, back, back then in 91, I mean, Pro Tools had just kind of started, hadn't it? So it's like, it had to be played that way. <laughs> and it was, it's just, it's one of those takes that to me is just so unique and well done that I've never managed to recreate it myself in the way that it sounds there. <laughs> I don't know why. It just never sounds as good. But that's probably Quincy Jones, isn't it? Well, there's a few examples in other genres that I can think of that are equally as simple because, you know, that bass line is super simple. But like you, John, who can play really crazy shit, couldn't do it. Like immediately two things that come to mind, which are, super obvious but like that you have heard covered eight million times but i guarantee you you've never heard it covered well once it would be back in black or walk yeah by pantera like the most simple riffs ever right have you ever heard anybody actually play those well besides no. the original artists i haven't man it's always a bad it's just bad it's it's just bad yeah that's that's another good example of a rhythm player that doesn't get the attention 
and that's uh, Malcolm Young. Man, his his parts are so hip, man. Yeah, it's it's so simple, but it's the way that he plays it that is so devastatingly good. Well, well, and the man, the range is really cool. Like I, like I don't know, just kind of working in the middle strings, and just like he. I don't know, man. He never like he never pops out. He never says like, "Hey, like here I am," and like here's all my shit, and I'm awesome. It's just always it's always sneaky. It's like I'm I'm fucking awesome, but I'm not gonna show you the how awesome I am until you try and play it. <laughs> uh, no, it, this song is awesome, and you're gonna feel it. That's yep. that's what it is. I think. Yep. 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 I'll feel it in my pocketbook if you like it. Basically. <laughs> Carter, what's your definition of pocket? Do you have like an actual definition for it? Because you taught me what it is, but like, I don't think you ever told me what you think it is. Man, God, that's a big question, man. I know. Because I don't think I've ever actually, like, I've heard it defined loosely as in like, you know, ahead of the beat or behind the beat kind of shit. But like, it's deeper than that. I can say this. I feel like every every genre of music has its own pocket to it. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Like when I got out of school, I started, I had this realization about vocabulary, right? Uh, I was thinking about vocabulary a lot. And I listened to your um, your interview with Wes uh, this week. Dude, he's a monster. He's dead. He's horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> But I had this, I had this, uh, you know, novel, you know, very small realization that was big for me. But uh, I started thinking about different styles because uh, I was basically in jazz school, but I was out in town doing a lot of different kinds of gigs. So, you know, like, okay, you know, one night you're playing with a rock band, you're playing with a reggae band, you're playing, you know, with a funk band or cover band or, you know, any of this other kinds of shit. But since I was doing a lot of stuff, I started to think, uh, you know, like, okay, like, how do you break down a style? Like, what, like, what is inside of a style? And what I, what I came up with at the time was, okay, like, every style of music has its own sonic vocabulary. It's got its own collection of sounds that, you know, are appropriate to it or the kind of gear that you may use. It's got a collection of rhythmic vocabulary. It's got a collection of melodic vocabulary, and it's got a collection of harmonic vocabulary. So like all those kinds of things, like if I had never played a country gig and I was like, well, okay, uh, so sonic vocabulary, well, okay, I probably need, I probably need a Telecaster, you know, maybe a compressor, a <laughs> little bit of delay, you know, quick, quick kind of thing. And, uh, you know, rhythmic vocabulary, it's like, okay, like I probably need to be able to, you know, do some 16th notes and, you know, get some shit happening with my right hand. Um, you know, certain kinds of grooves are going to feel certain ways. Uh, there's a lot of triads, some dominant chords, you know, that's where most of that's going to go. And in terms of like melodic vocabulary, it's like, okay, it's going to be a lot of shit you can hear, but if you can blast a bunch of open string shit, you're probably going to fit in. And, um, yeah, like on a good day, I could make people think I'm a shitty country player, by the way, I'm absolutely horrible at it. <laughs> On a good day, I could make people think that that's what my thing was. Just by just by filling in that criteria, like a checklist, and, and kind of like it's like okay, I have two days to figure out how to, you know, masquerade in this style. 
Like, you know, here's the best shit I can come up with on short notice. Yeah. So, you know, you'd fake some people out and it would be cool. And, you know, at worst, you know, I'd get fired. <laughs> but man, it, it did show me the depth of all this kind of stuff. And it was just like, man, you can spend 30 years listening to great country players. You can spend 30 years listening to great rock players. Great. Uh, you know, any, any of this stuff. It's a well. It's completely endless. I think that that is kind of half of it. I actually do believe that everything like that is sort of like the beginning to try and work it out. But when it comes to pocket, you can't really teach anyone how to groove. Do you know what I mean? It's like the reason why I think is because it depends on who you're playing with. That's a huge element. Yeah. I mean, that, that, and, but if you are playing by yourself, I always felt like it was the, sh man, it's the shit that makes me dance. Yeah. If, yeah. I, if I can sit there, if I'm playing walk at home, or, you know, a James Brown part or something. It's like, man, if I, if I feel something, then, you know, everything's firing, uh, you know, and it sounds good. I can listen to it and it's back. It's just like, man, shit, if I can dance to this, this has probably got that for me, at least. If, if you're going to fit into a situation with other musicians, I think that requires some adjustment because your version of pocket is not necessarily going to line up with everybody else's. And I think it goes, um, a little bit deeper with that when it comes to recording as well. So like, obviously the way that music used to be recorded, which was, you know, to tape all analog and you had to play it. <laughs> that's what the producer was there for. It was kind of like, that's the pocket, that's the take. That's like, obviously they're listening for, for as minimal mistakes as possible, but mostly it was listening to how it felt, which I think has been to a degree abandoned quite a lot now with modern recording techniques and obviously snapping to grid and stuff because I think you're right to a degree by the way about it being abandoned I however think it's coming back and the way that it's coming back is that now a lot of people are recording with no click and superimposing a grid on top of the performance like that's becoming a thing that a lot of a lot, especially in metal, a lot of people are yeah. starting to do like the totally hundred percent one tempo days where everything was gridded, gridded, gridded to fucking back. Uh, are I think people, it, it's kind of, I feel like it's like that was the equivalent of when the guitar player in the band gets a whammy pedal and then puts it on every <laughs> single song. Like, we I think, know who you're talking about, yeah, we, we know, know who you're talking about, you know, like that, but you know, that guy who like. Uh, I feel like producers went hog wild with gritting things at first when it became possible to make everything perfect. But then after a while, everybody started to realize you have sucked the feel out of music. And so now, A, they're doing stuff like, for instance, what we did on the last Doth record where the click, we played it to a click, but the click was on every song was like moving a lot, not just from verse to chorus, like chorus up to BPM, not that. I mean, like you were ramping it, basically. Yeah, like so you think you think about like the first Slipknot record where it makes you feel like fucking like jumping through a wall, probably because they were all like gacked on coke or something. But like, <laughs> but, but like it feels like that. Like, and there's a reason for why that first Slipknot record had that that intense vibe. And speaking to how you think Pocket is the thing that makes you want to dance, that's why I think that it's not just behind the beat or ahead it's appropriate for the situation because that first slipknot record for instance is way ahead all the time frenetic as fuck and that's its pocket and it's great so anyways we programmed the clicks to 
do that sort of thing. So where would we would think that it should naturally start to speed up, even if it was halfway through a fill, because that's how Dave Lombardo would do it or something, or Joey Jorson, or that's how you'd hear it on a Pantera record, or just or that's how it just felt like it should be. We would do that, or like slow down a riff gradually throughout, like because that's how it should be. And that ended up feeling great. And I've noticed that a lot more people are starting to do that now. Or again, like I said, recording with no click and then just, uh, you know, creating a, a grid on top of that performance, maybe fixing a couple of things. But the gridding everything to like 100% the way that they were maybe between 2005 to 2015 as like a goddamn rule, I think is not, it's still there, but it's, not as bad as it used to be. And I think the pendulum, now that the, now that the technology has been around long enough to where it's not novel, I think that people are back to trying to make art again. So I think that was a blip, like a blip in time when a new technology came around, you know, like when the guy gets the whammy pedal. And so (laughs) for the first four weeks of band practice, he's putting it in every fucking song. And then after a while, it's not novel anymore. And then it's only in the one part in one song that it makes a difference in. So that makes sense. That's what I'm seeing happen. So with the death record, uh, you, you kind of would, I guess, uh, strategically create intensity. Yes. Even, even while using a click, which, you know, helps kind of, yeah. Yeah. You kind of added an arc and a shape. That actually seems like a long way around. Well, it's because we wanted, because we had so many synths going on. Yeah. Because, I mean, Carter knows how layered Doth was. Um, I Brown, like, I didn't know you at that time, but Doth was, would have, like, 17 guitars going at the same time, plus it layers a synth, and, like, the songs were simple, but, like, the arrangements were just, like, crazy. And, uh, and we had to be playing to we had to have a click or else it would just become a fucking mess because it wasn't something that just like three people could just play. Man, and and also I think like the more theatrical, uh, for lack of a better word, like the more that that comes into play or the bigger, the more parts you have, the more musicians are involved. Like you have to do shit like that so it doesn't just completely fall apart. Yeah, exactly. So we, we had to just to be able to make it happen you listen to that last record, it's fucking insane. I have. Yeah, it's insane. There's so many layers. Wouldn't there be a way to do it so that... Because you said your drummer was Kevin, right? Yes. And you said he was ridiculous, right? Yes. So wouldn't you also just be able to let him play, wait for the best take, and then make a grid to him? Here's my answer. I've already tried that before that. I tried that with Sean Reiner on the instrumental record, the Avalanche of Worms that Amel and I did. We let him play. I don't think he did it to a click. And uh, we didn't edit drums at all. So, like, it is literally the exact performance that that guy did. R.I.P. Love that guy. But uh, he, um, you know, one of the best metal drummers of all time, in my opinion, and what was so great about him was his feel and his musicality. And we don't want to fuck with that one bit. Like it was such an honor to get him to play on that thing that it was like, let's just let it be what it's going to be. But then we took his performance that was like free and awesome, but it was free. And then tried to add 18 million layers on top of that. 
And uh, the amount of pain involved in trying to do that <laughs> is... Now, I have a question. Was the difficult part the fact that it was free or the fact that you were just writing to a drum part? Emil and I wrote it on our own, kind of to a click, and then we sent it to him. And then he wrote parts to our guitar parts, but then didn't play to the click. He kind of did his own thing and then sent us drums. And then we re-recorded. So, but the thing is, like, so if you're quadding guitars, like we would do, Amel mostly, because he's a better rhythm guitar player, but I played a lot of rhythms on it too. So, like, I can, I felt the pain too. Like, if you're, we quadded everything. So, that means, you know, quadding rhythms is a tough thing to do, as we all know, because you got to do it the exact same way every time. But if the exact same way every time on something that's free if you have to do that, that means that you have to learn the mistake every single time. You can't just play it right every single time. You have to play it wrong the exact same way every single time if you want it to be tight to that performance. And so to have to do that for an entire record that has that many layers of guitars will make you insane. That's a whole lot of work, man. Yeah, exactly. So with Doth, considering that we all kind of like hated each other already, we didn't want to like we couldn't go there. Like, plus there were even more musicians involved. So it wasn't just like me and Amel and like a couple dudes we hired. It was like a band plus a producer. So like it, uh, we needed the click dude. Like we need, we needed that. You only needed it because you're telling yourself you needed it. <laughs> you weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like what's the difference though? Like, cause technically playing to the click is unhuman. Do you know what I mean? The difference is that uh, we couldn't take a year to do it. That's fair. I, I totally understand. I mean, if you think about it, dangerous. Um, what we were just talking about earlier, that was 18 months in the studio. So it did take four months to record, which is a shitload of time for a Century Media budget. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you think about Century Media budgets, ban the only bands on Century Media that go four months straight. I don't mean like two weeks and then like two more weeks and a weekend here. Four months start to finish every single fucking day, 12 hours a day. Like that's something that only the big bands do and we're not a big band. So we couldn't do more. It so is I what it is. to man up to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I will not take shit about that one. No, I'm only kidding, man. Yeah, I understand. I know. I know you're fucking with me. But I guess my point just being, though, that like, I think that in modern day, the way that people are getting around the lack of pocket is by doing their best to create a pocket, at least create conditions where they can both achieve the modern stuff they need to achieve with production, as well as allow the musicians to have their pocket. Now, granted, most bands aren't as layered as that. So if you have a typical band with like two guitars, bass, drums, maybe some samples and a vocal. It's not as important in my opinion that uh, everything is done exactly to a, a click unless they need it, I guess. But I mean, some styles of music, it makes sense not to have it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like any jazz recording I've ever done, uh, a, a click fucking sucks. It's awful. It ruins, it ruins your ability to listen in some cases. And, it, and I'm not saying you know that you can't do it, but um, it feels very out of place for that kind of music. And some of it compositionally can get insane. 
as well. You know, some of the modern jazz that people write. There's you know times, you know, probably like metal. There's just time signatures changing all over the place, and you know, uh, quite a few people like they don't like they want to get it in one take. They have a different process, just a different process. So it's like I feel like if if everyone would get together and they shed a bunch of really hard shit, then they're just like, okay, like we know the hard shit. We know where it's going to go. We know how to like proceed as a unit and all that's great. Like if you can, if you can sit there and attack it as, you know, six people at the same time going for the same target, I think it's great without a click. If like one or two or three people got the tune down and a couple of other folks are kind of, you know, they're kind of on the wings a little bit. Which is like most metal bands. (laughs) I I mean, man, it's, it takes a lot of time. It all takes time. Like it takes a, it takes a lot of effort to get something tight. There's also the issue that with a lot of heavier recording, stuff is written on the spot in the studio too. Though isn't jazz improvised? Like so, tell what, what? So okay, so you're talking about six people or something all working towards the same target, multiple time signatures. What aspect of that is written, and what aspect of that is improvised on jazz recordings you've done? I guess uh, most, and I've, I've, obviously this isn't like, you know, completely cumulative, but uh, for the for the most part, like all the, in, like any of the insane shit that you would hear is, is most likely composed. Uh, all the solos are improvised. Everything that, you know, there's a lot of improvised elements in it. Yeah, I mean, the written part is kind of the easy part in, in those scenarios because you're like, oh, okay, cool, like play this murder lick in this time signature or whatever. And you're like, cool. All right. That's the part where I do that. And then the, uh, but all the improvised stuff, you can have a great take on everything. And then you shit the bed as an improviser and the whole tape that the take is done. <laughs> Cause uh. it's like, Oh man, like, wow, I blew that one. Uh, and vice versa, <laughs> you can, you know, you can have a, you can have a take where you trash all the rhythm stuff. Uh, but you're, you're just in the right mode to play some really amazing shit, uh, as a soloist or, and they can't just comp? In some cases, you can. I mean, that's more modern production. And, and I mean, like, you know, as well as I do, you know, you can sit there. Uh, you're like, well, okay, we could sit here for another eight hours until... <laughs> and sometimes you just don't want to do that. Well, I mean, if your solo is fucking perfect in round four of the song, but you nailed everything else in round one of the song, and the tempos happen to match up, and there's no weird bleed-overs or cymbals or anything, like... But there's no click. There's no click. So you can't. Well, there's no click, which is what, which is, you know, that doesn't mean it's the end of the world, but it's like, it's not like you're just comping the guitar solo. You got you to gotta comp the whole band. You got to comp everybody. And it might feel weird going into that section. It might feel weird. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. I don't know. Clicks, man. Clicks. But, but I mean, like talking about pocket, right? So like, I do kind of agree that like, okay, like a metronome in and of itself is kind of inhuman, right? You know, because no matter how good our time is, it always kind of slides around and does all this does all this stuff. No, dude, it's the metronome that's sliding. <laughs> yeah, dude, <laughs> the, the click moved. <laughs> but I mean, at the same time, like I've heard a bunch of great gridded pop tunes that you're like, fuck, this is funky. This is awesome. Then it's totally on the grid. Absolutely. Like you can, you can, you can see the 16th note subdivision, like in every part. Like, oh yeah. There, you know, it's got, it's got a thing on it. I mean, it's ominous. It's a, it's a crazy thing. And it's, I don't know, it's pretty fascinating. I think you're right that it's genre dependent. That's why I don't believe that pocket is the, like I said, when someone told me that pocket is playing behind the beat, I was like, that's one kind of pocket, but you're right. Like, 
for certain styles of music, but like you're right in certain styles of like electronic music too. And there's some badass electronic music out there that just makes you want to also jump through a wall. Um, Venetian snares being one of them. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, it's yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so I'm saying like that shit's perfect on the grid. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. John, also when it sorry. comes to, um, like different styles of metal, it also completely changes as well. Like for me, when I want a pocket that's really intense, generally it's pushing the beat, you know, like, yeah, things like the Slipknot like, thing. Yeah. Well, Alex Rudinger, when he's playing the death oh, thing, I can hear it pushing. Do you know what I mean? And obviously I got the chance to play with him. So I'm, uh, what I was saying about the different people, it was like, Oh yeah. He, he subbed for your band, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah. So he oh, played geez, on God. the Devon Townsend Animals as Leaders tour. And he was probably the most on the grid I've ever heard uh, any drummer. Carter, do you know who this guy is, Alex Rudinger? I don't. No. It's phenomenal. It is ridiculous. He currently plays with Whitechapel. He does? Oh, I'm not surprised. So, John, I got a question for you. So, how how is it different? And and not to say like not to compare this drummer to the you know the, to the drummer that was doing it before you stepped in or anything like that, but just how how did the gig feel different with somebody that was more from a grid mentality than you know than, than maybe the other guy was? So it almost feels like you're playing faster. I can't explain it any better than that. But I I mean I played with five different drummers playing the Monuments material. All great. All really good drummers, but it, they e each of them just felt so different, even playing to the same click. And that's what I'm saying about Pocket. It's it's totally down to the human playing it. Because <laughs> I think that with any style of music, you either play to the drummer or the bass. It's generally 90% of music, I would say. Foundation of the house, for sure. Exactly. I, obviously, apart from like classical music and stuff like that, but I still think that you would probably play to the bass instruments at the very least. But you play to the stick. Oh, well, obviously, yeah, you... <laughs> the conductor. But you know what I'm saying? It's like that's sort of the foundation. It's like the bass level. It's the, it's the driving force of the song. And guitar is literally just white noise on the sides of a track. But... Um, yeah, with each of those five different drummers, like the, and then obviously I filled in for Periphery as well. So I got to play with Matt Halpern. Um, and it's really interesting how the same songs can be played by all of those people, yet feel so radically different, even to a click. <laughs> um, yeah, because I'm trying to imagine Anup Sastry playing a Monument song versus Alex Rudinger, and they're both top level drummers like they're both amazing and they couldn't be more different it it felt completely different like um with alex it took me i want to say about six days to really get into it um just because of how different i was used to like sort of being a little bit lazy with the material um you know letting it sort of making sure that i wasn't pushing the song because i think that's like a you know when i think of groove i don't think of pushing but then after doing that tour with Alex, it made me realize that you can still achieve the groove. It just feels different. It's always blown my mind how you can change out one person and fucking everything is different. Yeah. <laughs> even even with the same material. And, and I mean, 
at least in in my world, most of the stuff that I would play, like there's there's a little more room for interpretation with, with some of that stuff. But you know, hearing the uh, you know the intensity of the the kind of you know bands that you guys are playing in, or you know, that's more kind of from your world. Uh, that's always been interesting to me because it's it's like okay, this is clearly this is very there's a lot of composition, and this is like okay, like we're gonna do this, and the tune's got to go this way for it to slam, but. Uh, to have that change that much, even in something so structured. I mean, I've always felt like with anything improvisational or with, uh, you know, any of the kinds of musics that I would play it, it's, it's like, if I can't connect with a drummer, like I'm doomed, there's yeah. nothing, there's yeah. nothing I can do. There is nothing I can play. That's going to feel cool. It's not going to be there. And like making sure, uh, my time and their time are kind of working together, but yeah, man, it takes a second and you know, you don't always get it uh, with some people right off the bat because it's, it's just different. You know, you just encounter something that's so different from what you were doing or what your perspective is of it. What do you do to help you lock into a drummer? Like I, I know what I've done. Like for instance, we had two fill in drummers at one point for certain tours that Kevin didn't do and they didn't play like him at all. And so what I would do is I would keep in my peripheral vision, I'd be looking at the snare. And so I would just make sure that everything I was, no matter what I was doing, I was always landing with that snare. Uh, and that's what helped me adjust to the drummer, whoever, whoever it was to that person's pocket as best I could. Um, that was my, that was my move to be able to, to synchronize, I guess. What, what, how do you, I want to hear from both of you guys, like what process you go through mentally to adjust to the pocket of the drummer you're with. You go ahead, John. You can go first. I drink beer and hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> so right. just, just as no, just as an example, like so the when Alex filled in, we got to play the set through once in the backstage area of Studio Seven in Seattle, just before the gig. We didn't get to rehearse. So it's obviously a, I knew that he could play the material well because he's a sick drummer. But there's no real way to prepare yourself to play with someone new. It doesn't matter what instrument they play in the band either. I think that regardless of who it is, it's always going to feel different. But as far as timing goes, our snares are about a minute apart each, usually on most riffs. So for me, it was the pedal hat. But there's still some element. But were you looking at it like peripheral vision? No, for me, I prefer to not visualize. I prefer to listen with me. Oh, like a real musician. <laughs> yeah, because, uh, well, obviously, you know, with Darth, a lot of your stuff was quite, you know, you know what I mean? So like, it's, it, like with us, it's... You, you, moved your, you moved your hand, but I'm not sure what that meant. You know, there's more snares than monuments. Uh, okay, yes. Quite busy on the drums. Yeah, whereas with monuments, the kick drum is following what the guitars are doing. So with Alex, we did it before any of the rest of the band were on click. So it was just the drummer on click. Now we all have a click. So at that point, I'd always be listening for the pulse, which with the snare you can do, but it's generally just on the three. So it was a little bit too distant to really feel the groove of that uh okay i i see what you mean yeah because kevin was like you've heard him like yeah lots of drums going on all the time captain snare himself yeah basically <laughs> so yeah so snare is a that was a good anchor for me 
but there's a lot of Pell Hat in monuments. So it's yeah. like, that was generally what I'd listen out for. And then the rest of it was generally just based on, am I hitting where the kick drum is? So you found it, but basically you found your anchor. There's always an anchor. Yeah, for sure. Okay. What about you, Carter? If I, if I need it, um, like if I'm really not connecting and I can't hear something right off the bat, uh, yeah, I'll usually look for something visual if I need it. Uh, I tended to go with the hi-hat usually because that was kind of telling me how somebody was subdividing. Yeah. If I could peg how they were going to subdivide, I could probably peg how they were going to feel the time. But I mean, like if I was, if I was a soloist or something like that, I would usually, uh, I would start with a rhythmic idea just between two notes. And I would try and do that for, you know, as long as I could, as long as I could do it. What do you mean? Like, so if I was, you know, it, you and me are on a gig and it's time for me to take a solo and we're playing some funk. God, you don't want it. Me and you on a gig with me playing a funk tune. I'm so sorry, dude. Yeah, I'm so sorry you're having to deal with that. <laughs> Worst gig of your life. <laughs> Be memorable though. We'd never forget it. True. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, man, I take I take two notes. So like dank don't don't gum 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 but don't dank take it dank 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 don't dank don't dat don't dant dat 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 you know whatever. I just sit there and I would try and have the most limited amount of melodic shit that I could deal with. I'd say, okay, I'm going all rhythm. And man, if if I can hook up with a drummer in the first four to eight bars of doing that, I realize I can play fucking anything. And I'm just like, man, great. Excellent. Like if he's, if, if he, if he notices the lines of communication are open and like I hear us listen, listen to each other, we're feeling the time the same way I could, I could do that for a minute and a half on the gig and still be interested in it. <clears throat> when that doesn't happen, then it's like, okay, I need to create more weight or create more sound to either get their attention, uh, you know, to have them listen more because it's, you know, it could be a number of things. They might not be able to hear me as well or, that, you know, it's a weird part in the room or, or whatever it is. So it's like, you know, if that connection isn't happening, it's like, okay, I, I got to throw out more input. But then I might, uh, I might be creating more activity across the fretboard. I might like, you know, have to ramp into another level of intensity because him and I aren't connecting that way which which to me is kind of the baseline like if we can if we can sit there and if we can groove together on something really simple and unearth a universe inside of this then it's like that's what i mean by anything can work because if that works anything can work improvisation is scary <laughs> man i'm sure i'm sure you guys would be i'm sure you guys are killer at it no i'm not good at it was never good at it and uh it's scary and by the way i remember those days at, was it your apartment um, or was it Amel's apartment when in like 2002 or whatever, when we'd go there? Uh, was it your apartment? Did you guys live together? That was Amel's place. I was okay. just hanging out there all the time. We would like drink a lot. We would drink a lot, but you guys would jam for like six hours straight. And just I'd be like, Jesus fucking Christ. This basically that's when I learned a lot about myself and what I'm good at and what I'm not. And, uh, being around you guys, uh, and actually I'm very thankful for this experience because that was when I decided to stop pursuing becoming like a, like a shredder or whatever, like, it, cause I was always kind of like into writing or into 
and also into playing really, really well. But when I, but like hanging around you guys and watching you guys jam for six hours straight, just trading solos, like every 16 bars being like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like what the hell? I was like, I need to focus on writing. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like there are people like this in the world and, uh, I need to do something that I can be this good at. Like you helped me realize that. And it's interesting because my dad realized this about his violin playing because he was originally a violin player and he was a percussionist and a violinist. And his, uh, his contemporaries were people like Itzhak Perelman and Pinchas Zuckerman and people who were like the biggest of the biggest were like his peers, like some of the best on earth. And he said that he was always like good. Like no one could ever say he was bad, but he just wasn't on that. Like he just didn't, he just couldn't get to that level. And so he decided to do something that he could be really, really good at, which was that big picture thing and conducting. He became one of the best in the world. And so I kind of had a very similar realization from watching you guys that it was like, I need to focus. I'm better at like, thinking of big picture kind of stuff, uh, like the song, like how to get the band signed, like, you know, what I'm doing now. Like, it's like those experiences there made me realize I'm not a specialist. Like you guys are specialists. Like this is not me. Like there are people like you guys in the world who, who are scary at this shit. Actually, I'm very thankful for that experience because I feel like one of the things that a musician or anyone in life should learn is what their role is and what their talents are and know themselves. And one of the things that holds people back, I think a lot, especially in creative fields is being delusional about what you're great at, what you're not, what your talents are, what you want and all that. And so that made it super clear to me that like, there's no matter how hard I practice, like, Amos always going to be better at playing solos. <laughs> There's no matter. I mean, you know the feeling of playing with him. So you're great too, though. But like, you know what I mean? Like he had this, his is like a superhero level of skill. And uh, which you, I think you have that too in your own style. But like between the two of you, it was just like, Jesus fucking Christ, man. Uh, I couldn't practice enough to be able to do this. But there are other things I could do. I could put that kind of time into to do just as well in other ways. At that at that time, were you uh, were you working were, were you working on soloing or kind of going down that path? I guess is it something that you were genuinely interested in, or did you feel like you know you should be more into it? I felt like I should be more into it. So when I was really really into it was around the time I met you several years earlier at that Berkeley program, like when I was 17 or 18, that's when I was practicing five or six hours a day, trying to play as fast as I could. And like, you know, all that stuff, like Ingve shit. And, and I could do it to a degree. Uh, and I thought I should be interested in it. And, but by the time that we were hanging out at Amol's apartment, I had already left Berkeley, had come back to Atlanta to start the studio and start the band. And like, I was split. Like I had this, like, I should be working on this solo stuff, but like, I want to be working on 
the band and getting it signed and learning how to make these records and like writing these songs. And then all those nights watching you guys, because honestly, I didn't encounter players like you guys at Berkeley. I thought I would, but I didn't like there weren't, there weren't that many other than the instructors. I didn't encounter too many great players. Like I was actually very disappointed. Uh, I was expecting, I was expecting to go there and get blown away. So where, where I got blown away was when I came back and was hanging out with you guys. So those experiences made me realize that that feeling of feeling like I should do that is just ego pride talking. Yeah. I mean, some of the, some of the shit that I, uh, I mean, I, I definitely have gotten caught up in that in my own umbrella. I think everybody does. I think there were, there was certain shit I used to practice out of fear. <laughs> Quite honestly, I, I mean, just like fear of like, okay, like I'm not going to get this kind of situation. I'm not going to be able to hang with these kind of musicians. I'm not going to, you know, have the tools necessary to do X, Y, or Z. No matter how hard you work kind of thing. Yeah, I, and I mean, it, and I guess like once I started to recognize that, it's just like, okay, like, you know, do I give a shit about this? It's like, no, nah, man, you're just afraid of, you know, you're just afraid you're going to fucking fall on your ass in a situation like this, which probably isn't right for me anyways. Mm-hmm. So it's like, then I think the, uh, the focus changed to where um, you're just like, okay, well, what am I interested in? What am I actually interested in? I think that's hard for people to realize. It is. I think to a degree, it takes people their whole life to get rid of that ego because they're constantly comparing themselves to their peers and other people. That's why I'm so thankful that I had that realization at like 23 years old. I definitely had it early on too. I was quite lucky because I had the realization from getting a problem with my hands. So yeah, I got psoriasis on my hands, like Sean Lane. And I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that guy, but he suffered with... I've, I think I've heard of him. Didn't really? he like win yeah, a yeah, Guitar yeah. Center competition for oh, like yeah, he, he best, did, Pan- yeah. best Pantera cover? He was probably at Berkeley when you were there as well, mate. And it was one of those terrible guitar players. Yeah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of like the realization for me. It was like, oh, I can't actually do this without tearing my hands to shreds. So that was kind of... And that happened when I was 17. So I was quite lucky to be that early and, you know, not being able to do Ingve. And, you know, I do miss it. It was fun, you know, to try and play those John Petrucci licks and the Ingve licks and, you know, build on my ego. Oh, I can play this. I, I'm sick. But at the same time, I think that focusing on what you're good at or trying to find what you're good at is one of the things that we all fail to do at the beginning. Yeah. See, you know, with those dudes, who are like that, I don't think, I mean, look, we all have an ego. That's a part of being a human. Nobody doesn't have one, but like, like we just talked to Kiko from Megadeth a couple days ago. I like how you missed out his last name. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't say it on purpose. Uh, I thought about it and I was like, I'm not fucking it up. Lureiro. 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 Yeah. Kiko Lureiro. Lureiro. Are you familiar with him, Carter? Mm -hmm. He's fucking incredible. When we talked to him, I didn't get a sense of any lead guitarist, diva attitude. I got the impression of a person that loves music and is music. And he just happens, that just happens to be his expression is being a fucking God on guitar in that way. And so, and that's what I've noticed with virtuosos is they have an ego like everybody else does, but it's, it's a lot more than that that gets them to play like that. It's, that's 
what they're into. It's way deeper than ego. Like their drive is to do that because they have to do that. I remember we asked him, do you still practice every day? And he was, at first he was like, no. Then we went a little deeper and it turns out that not a single day goes by that he doesn't play guitar. It's just, he doesn't consider everything practice. So yeah, he, he made it sound like he doesn't practice for long stretches of time. And upon further inspection, he plays every single goddamn day, no matter what. And it's just, he's not sitting there fucking shredding every single day. But, uh, but like, he'll be learning like a Paco de Lucia thing. That's not practice. That's for fun. (laughs) You know, (laughs) but I, but my point, my point being is that, uh, when you feel like you should be like that kind of player, then you probably aren't because I don't think that players like that feel like they should be that kind of player. I think that just is who they are. Like with Amel, for instance, that is who he is to be obsessed with guitar. I mean, I haven't talked to him in a long time, but I know what he was like for about 12 years of his life. And he didn't change one bit. Like he was 100% dedicated and obsessed with playing guitar. And I'm sure he still is. And like Wes Hawk, uh, he's what? He's in his late thirties. He's still on the guitar eight hours a day. Like he told us or something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like what about, what about you, Carlton? Like, do you still practice that intensely? I play anywhere from zero to 12 hours a day. Yeah. 12. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some days it's just, I'm not surprised. And man, it kind of depends on what I'm doing. Like in terms of like practice, like if I'm going to sit down and practice, you know, man, like there's, there's not the four to six hour stints that I used to have. I mean, uh, I think it started when I had kids too, man. Like I, when I was playing around Austin all the time and they you know, kids would be in the house. I would like just to get time to get in the headspace to even, you know, consciously really dig into anything musically. Uh, and this is not, obviously not their fault. That's just, you know, I was wired a certain way for so many years. Uh, you know, man, I'd leave to go to gigs early. And so I'd be sitting out in front of the bar, you know, for an hour before we would play. And yeah, man, I'd work on shit. I would work on it whenever I can. So I think like, I think my strategy changed when I just had less time to actually have the instrument in my hand. I do shit like I'd have a metronome in the car. You know, I'd be working on rhythmic shit. So the obsession never went away. You just adjusted your strategy to be able to make it work with your life. Absolutely. Which is my point. Yeah. I used to, uh, every time I'd pump gas, you remember that old uh, Seinfeld commercial? Like in like, I'm sorry, I, it was an old like, it was a credit card commercial and Jerry Seinfeld's at the, at the fucking gas pump and he sits there and he's just, he's like looking away and talking to the camera and he like slams a $20 perfect pump. No, I don't remember that one, but it was some shit I saw when I was Atlanta, in Atlanta. But every time I go to the gas station, I go to that quick trip that was on, you know, Peachtree Circle, Peachtree mm-hmm. Corner Circle, whatever it was. And uh, I'd sit there and I'd take, a, I'd take a look at the gas pump. I'd keep the same pressure in my hand to where I felt like it got a tempo. I'd shut my eyes and see if I could count the dollar every time as it would roll down. I just couldn't stop thinking about the shit, man. So, so, so yeah, like times of swaths of like practicing and sitting down and really focusing on something deeply. That's something I want to get back to more. I'm finishing up a, a, a lot of recording recently and I'm going to have some time open up, which is good because I want to get, I want to get into that. I'm really curious uh, about developing, you know, a lot of other aspects of my playing right now. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, the older I get and the longer I play, the more everything I work on becomes utterly fundamental. 
it's just like, it's the most basic shit. That's all I seem to ever work on. I guess you're proving my point. Exactly. <laughs> Which is that that's just who you are to keep on wanting to go further and further and further with guitar. And you haven't wavered. Like I've known you what, like crazy 23 years and you haven't wavered at all um, in, in that thing. And I don't think, I'm sure that you have days that, you know, some good days, some bad days, but like, I've never known you to not have that thing for getting better at guitar. Yeah. It's always, it's always been there. And I think it took me maybe, I, I don't even know if I realized it really until like the last two or three years, but I think that's, that's really why I've been playing the whole time. Like it's had nothing to do with a, a career like, oh man, you know, I've got to play with this band or I've got to do this or I've got to do that. Like that's, that's been the driving interest the entire time. It's just like, oh yeah, like music is fascinating. There's always shit to learn. There's always something to dig into. And like, yeah, there's never a shortage of anything to work on. And just, yeah, I still dig getting better. I still like exploring it. That's insane, isn't it? <laughs> well, the thing is, though, I don't think that someone listening to this who isn't like that but still wants to do music should take that as a cue to stop necessarily. All it means is figure out what it is that does get you stoked like that. So for instance, back when I met you, I already had ideas of starting. I like, I wanted like, I probably talked to you about this. Like in my mind back then, I called it an empire, but like I wanted to start some sort of a company thing, but I didn't know what. And there was like something with like educating something, but like, I wasn't sure, like it was all amorphous, but like I had this, but I wanted to put something big together that was bigger than me. And like that idea has never left. Like other things have come and gone, like getting fast. The guitar came for a while, then it went playing in a band came and went. And I really did want to do the band for a while, but then I was over it and I never wanted to do it again. Uh, production, there came a day where I never wanted to do it again. And, but I never felt the way, the way about the band or production about the way that I felt about doing about like this, just doing this bigger, like creating this bigger thing, which has been in my head since I was like 14 or 15. Um, so once I like accepted that, that's when shit like URM started to happen. And had I like, taken the cue of like being around you and Amel is like a cue to quit guitar. That would have been the stupidest thing I could have possibly done. Right. So, because none of what I'm doing now would have been possible without the experience on guitar with the, uh, the experience of the band without the experience in production. So what I, I guess just for people listening who are hearing this are like, Holy shit, I'm not obsessed like that with guitar. That's okay. There's maybe there is something related to music that, or something else, who knows, but find the thing that you are like that about. Because uh, if you're not, you're going to be dealing with people like Carter and Amel or Kiko that, uh, <laughs> or Wes, who it's well, not... They're all fucking disgusting, aren't they? It's, it's just... There's a lot of effort involved in the actual playing, but it's not an effort to like 
the passion for it is not an effort. I, I think it's actually different. Like, you know, when we see people being obsessed about a bunch of different things. What do you mean by a bunch of different things? Video games, weightlifting, running. People, well, we see it as an obsession, but I think it's different. I don't, I don't really see it as obsession. I see it as when someone really enjoys the process that basically you playing guitar is like when someone goes and plays video games to relax. It's not an obsession. The reason I say it's obsession is because you're thinking about it when you're not doing it. You're thinking about it when you're doing things that are completely unrelated and you're relating everything to it. So your mind is consumed by it. Like, so for instance, sitting there pumping gas, closing your eyes and then <laughs> using that to, uh, to figure out the timing or whatever. I'd say that was observant more than anything. Yeah, but without obsession, you're not going to sit there and think about that. You're going to sit there and daydream about whatever, or you're going to think about just getting the fuck out of the gas station. <laughs> like people who, okay, so first of all, let's, let's define something. Brown, I think that you define, because we talked about obsession before, I think well, you define obsession in a negative context and I don't. So, because obsession could be looked at as the way that like, a stalker gets or something obsessed with a female and doesn't, or like I had a stalker. So, so a female <laughs> gets obsessed with a guy. I'm not seeing it as a negative per se. I think it's a negative way to look at it. I don't, I, I don't, cause I don't attach a value judgment to obsession. I just think. Oh, okay. That's fair enough. Yeah. I know where you're coming from with it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For me, obsession is neutral. Like, it's just as a state of, it's almost like a state of being or a state of mind. It just indicates an insane amount of preoccupation with something. It basically being consumed with it. It could be anything. And so, yeah, some people point it. It's like a high powered weapon, almost like your brain's like a high powered weapon. And people who get obsessed with things like they're pointing that weapon in a certain direction. And some people point it in stupid directions, like uh, like something that that's not productive or helpful to their lives or like something. Tinder. Like Tinder. <laughs> or gambling. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. But, but if you win all the time, then it's not a bad obsession really, is it? Yeah. But uh, <laughs> what are the odds of that? Or like, you know, a stalker points that at another human being and objectifies them and it's not good. But it's that same characteristic, though, that makes somebody not lose their passion for guitar for over 25 years, right? It's the, but it's the same thought process. They're always thinking about that thing. No matter what they're doing, they're relating it to guitar, to that thing that they're obsessed with. Like bodybuilders are the same way, man. Like yep. a real bodybuilder, a real bodybuilder is very different than a casual weightlifter. Like a real bodybuilder, they're thinking about their recovery time, exactly how many hours they slept, the meal timing, exactly what macros they're getting, what muscle groups they're working on, the like every single little thing, the exact dose of the supplements, like everything is what they're thinking about. And they're always thinking about it. That Dude, that's obsession. I guess to a degree, yeah. I would agree with you. But that doesn't mean it's a bad thing, though. That's true. So I've got a question for you both based on this, actually, because I'm quite interested. Do you reckon that, Carter, that you were, in a way, lucky to find 
the guitar. Because I think that this characteristical trait is in all of us and just some of us don't find what we can apply it to in a positive way. Uh, yeah, man, I would say I feel extremely lucky to have yeah. found it at the age that I did. How old? 12. Okay. But I will say like all the bullshit that and all the stuff that you go through if you don't find that or if you are looking for that thing, uh, that same frustration or those same kinds of scenarios, those struggles just happen within music and the guitar instead of over a wider scale. So, so, so let's say, you know, we all start playing the guitar at 12 years old and, you know, after four or five years, you're like, shit, man, I'm pretty good. <laughs> then, uh, you know, all the other, all the other kinds of things, the same kind of questions would pop up, but now we're just like, we're just under the umbrella of music and the guitar. It's just like, well, okay, you're really good. Uh, are you as good as that guy? Like, what are you going to do with this? Like, what kind of like, oh shit. Okay. The pressure's on. You found something that you're good at. And I think when people are looking for those things, they can have an intense amount of frustration trying to answer questions that are difficult to get a hold of. I just feel like, uh, I don't know. I just had to, I just had a subcategory of it. Two things. First of all, I don't think everybody has something like that in them. Why not? Because I think that people operate on a spectrum and this has been pretty proven. Like everything from mental illnesses to personality types to disorders to positive characteristics are all on a spectrum with people. Uh, like the spectrum is spectrum isn't just for autism. The spectrum is for everything related to human personality traits and characteristics. So I think that uh, the ability to be obsessed with something and need, need to find that thing is going to be stronger in some people because I'm sure you know some people who are floating through life and they're perfectly happy with that. Like they don't, they don't feel like anything's missing. They're not looking for that thing. And maybe that's I, their obsession. It's not an obsession. They're totally cool with, uh, look at it like a spectrum where someone who is obsessed, like, like one of us or like a Wes or something, it's pretty high. Like I would say like an Elon Musk is even higher, but like <laughs> someone like that who just lives, breathes and eats this thing or searching for this thing. But dude, you know that there are people who are not like that and that's okay. Uh, like I said, I actually kind of envy them. It's a spectrum. And we happen to be like on the farther end of the spectrum of that. And so we're lucky that we found something. I think that for people who are on the far end of that spectrum, like we are, if they don't find that thing, that's where the frustration is going to be. Because they're going to, instead of being like, all right, am I as good as that guy? Then it's like, why do they have that thing and I don't? Okay, so I got a question. Sure. So with everything you just said, so what's more frustrating? Not finding the thing. So you're just like, okay, well, shit, man, I didn't get a ticket to the concert. You know, I can't get in the door. Or you're you're great at something, but nobody gives a shit. <laughs> oh my God, both make me angry. Yeah, and <laughs> like, I think that's, like, that's something that changes too, right? Like we... Uh, just because you're good at something, you feel like, oh, well, like we should be celebrated for this or like, oh, okay, well, I've put in, you know, 23 years of work into playing an instrument, you know, clearly I'm entitled to something. It's like, no, man, you're not entitled to jack shit. Okay. So I think um, that if you're truly, truly obsessed. So first of all, I think that the obsession and 
your need for validation are two completely different things. So, and that also is on a spectrum. So some people need more validation than others, which is why you have certain artists or musicians who like, you find this with like composers who become famous posthumously. Like there are some very famous composers that they didn't even tell anyone that they were composing. People were going through their estate after they died and discovered like a treasure trove of orchestral scores that are now played as part of the standard repertoire because they're incredible. There's There are artists in all fields like that. Like there's people who invent shit in their basements all the time too, build stuff that you never hear about. And it's not because they're not obsessed. It's because their need for validation, that spectrum is pretty low. So I think, I think it's two different things. Like if you are super obsessed with something and you're super high on the need for validation, then it's going to be very frustrating. But if you're a person who's low on the need for validation, but high on the obsession, I think that you're probably going to have a pretty happy life because 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 think about it, you could just go to your basement, play guitar, get awesome. And that in and of itself is going to satisfy you because you don't have this need for that. I'd say that was quite rare, though. I think human beings require the almost acceptance of others. On a spectrum. Have you met someone that hasn't required that? Yes. Really? Yes. Uh-huh. Interesting. Absolutely. And I know you have too. The thing is, John, we're in a bubble. That's actually very true. Yeah, that's true. Don't forget, we're in a bubble. We know a lot of successful musicians. We've both been in the industry for well over a decade at this point. The people who we know, our closest people, are the people who are both obsessed and both need the validation. That's our world. But don't forget how small our world is. That's actually very true. Yeah. Don't be fooled by our bubble. And that's only, that's something that I've only started to really realize in the past few years is just how different the, like my circle of, I'd say both friends and contacts is than the wider world. Like most people, first of all, I don't think are this obsessed with something or have this need for validation. I think with most spectrums, and I've been studying this a lot lately, like, uh, with like everything from narcissism to obsession and things like that. Most people are like, you know, zero is like nothing and 10 is super pathological. Five is, you know, between four to six is like healthy on a scale of one to 10. Most people will be somewhere in that four to six range. So like, I think that some people have, a very uh, like a healthy need for validation, but that could be as simple as getting an "I love you" from their partner, or "How are you doing today?" Like, nice to see you. You look good from their someone in their family or a friend. Like, it's not something like they need to be validated by the world for their skills or something. Um, and I also don't cons- I don't think it's a value judgment either. Like, I don't. I don't judge people if they have a high need for validation because that's not their fault. Like that's how they're wired. So yeah, we don't pick, we don't choose our wiring. What do you think about that, Brown? And what do you think about that card? I want to hear your guys' thoughts. <laughs> you first, John. All right. Yeah. I'm getting thrown in at the deep end. No, I totally agree with you on that particular 
instance, but I don't agree with you on absolutely anything else. That's fine. <laughs> That's why we're doing this podcast. <laughs> now nah, I'm kidding. I think you're a really good guitar player. Uh, I can't remember the last time I saw you play guitar. Now, do you agree with me on that? No. Okay, cool. But Because I was lying. <laughs> so, what about you, Carter? Anytime I feel that I need validation, it doesn't necessarily have to come in any particular kind of skin. You know, it doesn't have to be musical. It doesn't have to be, you know, romantic or for my family or, you know, friends or any stuff like that. Usually, usually it's just some of that in general. And it doesn't have, it doesn't have to take a specific form. So it sounds to me like you've got a healthy amount. It sounds like you're healthy on the spectrum. Uh, well, and I, uh, I gotta, I mean, I gotta say though, that was probably after a lot of frustrating years of, you know, expecting it to be a certain way. Like, I mean, it's kind of like music, right? It's like, you know, you're, you live with your perspective of music and, you know, okay, that's the discipline that we're all exploring. And we, you know, see a whole ocean of shit, you know, and all of this, uh, you know, your wiring can be equally explored with the same amount of intensity or care or interest. So it's, um, yeah, there were some, there were definitely years that, you know, were frustrating for, X, Y, or Z are expecting situations to provide me with something. Actually, like even with the instrument, I think that's something I expected of the instrument for a number of years. It was like, okay, well, I've chosen to pour so much effort into, into this. It's like a question like, or a realization or a thought of, uh, you know, confronting that you're like, okay, well, what if I do all this and I love this to death and everything's cool? And what if, what if it's a complete waste of time <laughs> confronting a question like that? You're just like, fuck man, that's dark. Like, wow. <laughs> but at the same time, like, you know, confronting a question like that, you know, which I, which I think personally was something I was kind of afraid to take a look at or, or like, you know, I had a time when I first moved to England just cause it was like completely starting over you know, professionally at least in a completely new environment to where it was like, I was walking, uh, you know, I was walking with my guitar down in London, going to, to play somewhere walking off the bus. And I was just like, man, shit, do I just need to start doing something else? Like, do I just, it's the first time I've ever had that thought in my entire life. It's like, it's never even been a question. But, uh, after I thought about that, is because like, that was a thought that used to freak me out. Cause it was like, man, you know, I don't, I don't even want to entertain some shit like this. Cause I, you know, I really love doing this. Uh, but man, once I actually said it and kind of chewed on it, it was like, okay, like, no, like this is exactly what you want to do. Like you're just, you're just expecting, like I had unfair demands on music. Mm-hmm. That's, that's essentially what I'm trying to get at. And I think when I was living in Texas and I was, I mean, you know, I was playing five to seven nights a week for a decade it's it's like you just kind of just get used to this kind of level of activity this level of thing and i probably had time to think but still the thing is from what i know uh from at least what i've studied about these spectrums is that still sounds healthy to me like there's nothing unhealthy about self-awareness and self-examination but if you were on the pathological end of it you wouldn't have come to peace with that question or some semblance of peace with it, you would be fucked up over it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So basically the higher end on these spectrums you get, the closer you get to pathological. And once you're pathological, that's when like anything pathological, you, you need help, uh, like professional help for it. But so just some self-examination isn't gonna 
answer the question for you because there's this need that's actually a mental illness that you need serious, serious help for. If you're able to do some self-examination, ask yourself some healthy questions, then go on doing the thing you're doing and being like, yeah, this is cool. That sounds healthy, dude. Oh, yeah, man. It was just a... It was a funny turning point because I think from from that from that moment, uh, I guess asking the question that I was trying to avoid, I think for a long time, or just uh, you know just cracking some of that shit open and actually seeing how you're you know like okay like how do I feel about doing this for a living? Like it's been this long, I've never questioned it. Okay, it's been like fifteen years. <laughs> like you know, you, and you you actually take a look at. It. I, I think it's healthy to question what you've been yeah. doing for a certain amount of time. If you think about it, like any normal job, people get bored after three months. <laughs> so. So when you're do it doesn't matter if it's something that you're really passionate about like just the moment that it changes from being like a hobby something that you're so passionate about to actually becoming the way that you live your life obviously there's going to be a completely different set of questions that arise from that especially after 15 years you know I I'm, I mean AL definitely had that question at some point especially with like Darth and multiple times Exactly like, yeah yeah like and, I remember so you know, I started Doth in 99. Uh, Doth ended at the end of 2010. It's a long stretch. And yeah, you know, people know us from the signed years, but you know that it was around six years before that. Uh, somewhere around 2008, which was nine years in, I was starting to be like, I don't know, man. <laughs> like I was starting to think like, there was the reality of the fact that we didn't have great chemistry as people, but just besides that, besides that and the external stuff of like just the grind of being in a band that in my opinion is under, under recognized and underrated, like that, all that aside, like I still was starting to feel like this isn't what I should be doing. Like something about this is like a misuse of my brain. And uh, it was a tough question to confront, man. But I think it's one of the best things I've ever done. I could have been like, no, actually, I want to keep doing this. Like, I don't care. Like, maybe it requires some lineup changes. Maybe like, uh, maybe the chemistry is just wrong and I need to fix the chemistry. Maybe we just need to put out a few more records and let it build longer. If this is what I really wanted to do. Or it might just needed a break. Maybe, but we did take a break between record labels. We took like a year. I mean, we were writing and doing stuff like that, but it was not nearly as active. So there was like, there was downtime. Um, I could have come to those conclusions that actually, yes, this is what I want to do. Maybe just the situation is not ideal, but I came to the conclusion that no, this is not what I want to be doing. And, uh, but that was a tough one to confront, man, because my whole identity was wrapped up in that band and being a musician. That's really what it is. It's like your identity. When something externally happens to you that makes you put that identity into question. Yeah. And this is sounds shallow, but you know, <laughs> I'm just going to admit it. Uh, like I remember and also not just my identity, but like, I was wondering what it would, how it would affect like my relationships with people. Like would I lose a bunch of friends with people no longer want to talk to me? <laughs> that just happened anyways with some stuff. But like, uh, <laughs> but, but like, for instance, I remember 
I started testing girls I was dating by telling them I want to quit the band. And just to see, would they still want to talk to me when I... Like, are they just hanging out with me because uh, I'm in the signed band or do they actually like me? So I would be, I would uh, start telling them the truth about uh, thinking of leaving. And it was very interesting to see the reaction because just about all of them uh, suddenly started to lose interest. And so, uh, which is what I suspected. Um, and so that all, that kind of fed into the idea that like, this isn't just my like identity internally. Like I'm going to be changing the way that other people view me. And I think that anyone who says that they don't care how other people view them is lying because we care about our role in society. So these are tough questions to ask yourself because uh, your identity, both internally and externally uh, gets challenged, but they're super, super important. Like you have to ask yourself those questions in my opinion. Well, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of musicians all over the world are asking them, themselves these questions right now. Yes. Yeah. As all this shit is going on. Um, yeah. It's funny. I think uh, if I hadn't kind of moved to England two years ago and like had some of this stuff kind of shook it up already. Yeah, man. It would be way harder. If you hadn't come to England, you don't think that you would have broached the topic? If I hadn't come to England two years before COVID hit, when COVID, if I was living my old life that I was in Texas, COVID would have been fucking devastating. Ah, uh, yes. Five to seven gigs a week, right? Uh, I mean, with a wife and two kids. So, I mean, that just would have, I mean, that just would have wiped everything out instantly. Yeah. Well, that would have been all your income, wouldn't it? I mean, and, and I mean, like I've, I've always taught and stuff like that. So there was, you know, there'd be some of that in there. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, yes, they would all be gone, you know, with mortgage payments and all sorts of other, yeah, I mean, all the bills that everybody has. And you wouldn't have been able to teach either because if you did it in person, then that also hits that because of COVID. Yeah. I mean, uh, I guess a lot of schools kind of went online, yeah. you know, now or they're, try they're trying to pivot, you know, anything. But uh, yeah, man, I imagine a lot of people were staring at this, you know? Yeah, they are. They are. We've done, I don't know, 20 of these now? Yeah, 20. Yeah. And so, as you know, we're talking to guitar players. And uh, it's very interesting because, you know, in URM, I'm mainly talking to producers. And so the producers and the mixers basically haven't been affected, other than the fact that they're not necessarily recording people in person so much. They're doing a ton of mixing. So for them, life as usual. The musicians, though, is a different story completely. It's very, very interesting what you're seeing happen because there are some people where it's been devastating. Uh, and then there's other people who just snapped into figuring out how to pivot. And uh, however, the people who were making the most of it were in bands that already were like really well known and had the momentum of the band. And so all they did was take the momentum the band had, and then instead of putting all that effort into a tour, they put all that effort into the pivot. And so that momentum carried them. They had the attention already. Yes. If you didn't have the attention already, I could see it being traumatic. Like, I would liken it to what happens to road crew members during COVID. Like, if your job was being a guitar tech, ouch. 
Yeah, or a live sound engineer. Well, they're doing better than you would think. I've talked to a few of them because they're starting, they're finding ways. Like, so a lot of live sound engineers are figuring out how to do broadcast audio for, you know, because all the big bands are now doing streams. So their sound guys are learning how to engineer that stuff. Um, So a lot of the live, at least, I don't know about the ones on local levels, but I know that in the touring circuit, a lot of the sound guys are, they've pivoted especially the ones that are like on retainer with bands. So if they're on retainer with a band and the band is now doing a live stream kind of thing instead of a tour, well, their sound guy is mixing it. So like, and they're starting to do more studio work, but the tour managers, the roadie types, the guitar techs, the ones whose income is 100% based on this gig actually happening as a gig, uh, that's a little tougher. I think. And I can imagine musicians that are not in like a band band who are like in a gig economy kind of thing. I imagine that if they don't have a teaching business, it's fucked. So what's sustaining you now? Oh, me? Oh, man, I'll do... uh, I've got maybe, I don't know, 15 students online. I just do remote tracks. That's that's pretty much it. You put out the course? The, the course came out, which was cool. That was the first time I had uh, done anything with True Fire, and so that was uh, that was a cool experience. How, how so? We we don't normally talk about uh, about courses and stuff that aren't riff hard, but I feel like in your case, I want to make an exception because first of all, it's such a different world. Anyways, I just want to hear about it. Yeah, man. So uh, pretty much a guy that I knew in Atlanta that I, th- I think I used to I used to tour with when I was about 18. It was one of my first gigs ever kind of traveling around. He lives down there and he kicked my name over to them. And uh, I was playing with David Grissom at the time, which had done a course for them. And he's a, you know, pretty badass guitar player. Um, so the guy gave me a call and we kind of talked about it and he told me how everything worked. Uh, I was like, okay, you're going to, you know, shoot everything in a couple of days. You fly down to Florida to where their spot is. And uh, I was like, great. And we were talking about putting something on the calendar, which was probably going to be in the summer. This was like January, I think. It was like, cool. Okay. So we'll talk about that in, you know, a month or so and see if we can pin down a date. So they called me, the guy called me like two, three weeks later. He's like, Hey, we got a cancellation in like a month. So, you know, do you want to do do this? And I was like, well, okay, I guess I got to put together a a course. I was like, okay, fuck it. Let's do it. So, yeah, man, I had, I didn't have as much time as I thought I was going to. So pretty much I, I feel like I tried to give away 10 of the 10 things about improvisation that I still use like all the time. Uh, just because I, I was like, well, I might only get one shot at this. So let's try and make it as valuable as I could. So out of the probably the hundreds of things you've learned about improv, what are the 10 that have become your mainstays? Uh, man, the ones I kind of focused on in the video, uh, one was uh, using multiple pentatonic scales over <laughs> a single chord. That was one. What do you mean? Uh, so like if you have an A minor seven chord and you're just playing over one chord, I, I kind of treat it as the two chord. So A minor is the two chord of the key of G. And so uh, if you're playing over that tonality, uh, you can use A minor pentatonic, which is you know the same root as the chord. You can use B minor pentatonic, which gives you two, four, five, six, and one off the chord. Uh, and then you can use the minor pentatonic off the five. 
which would be E. Uh, so like, let's say you're like a classic rock player, you know, that knows everything in the box that, that kind of gives you two other places on the neck to where you can say, Hey, I can use the same piece of vocabulary in different ways. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting because that's how I write music as well. I just wanted to pop that in there, like the use of different positions within the same scale. So like, there's always going to be two points where you can play the same thing. And I, I think it's quite similar. The fact that you said use it on the five, you can play the same shapes um, where it's not too dissimilar from what you're doing. Sorry to interrupt you there, but yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, man, that's, a, I mean, you, you, that's exactly it. It's just, and it's just kind of fascinating to when you can take the same thing that actually has the same physical execution. Like yeah. that's something I also think is valuable. Like you, you have something that, well, at least like with, uh, with you guys that play metal uh, and, and, you know, me, who's got a, a very light background, in that just like being influenced by it rather than than playing it like you played it when i first met you i played some like you know how was it i wasn't you you played some satriani solos <laughs> satriani is a metal come on it's not metal fair enough but yeah man like like i noticed these <laughs> days i i end up learning shit about layout yeah like i think about shit that's like okay well this is comfortable for me to play fast or this is easy for me to execute i don't have to think about it you know it's natural it just pops right out and so starting to experiment with just how i'm laying things out and like if you're like if the pentatonic scale is easy for you and that's an easy layout for you to use a whole shitload of your vocabulary like there's two other spots you can do it in and it's uh i don't know man it's still interesting I could, I could, I could play over that for two hours, just messing with that one thing. <laughs> just trying different licks in the different positions where you don't have to think about the actual shape because you're not changing it based on if it's the major shape or the minor shape or something like that. You, you literally don't have to change anything about it apart from the fret in which it starts on. It can literally be on the same strings. Yeah. It's exactly how I write music. <laughs> Actually, man, I want to hear about a few more of these, and yeah. I want to hear if if you use those techniques too. That uh, that's fascinating to me. I kind of did two that were like harmonic based because I mean, and and by the way, if anyone uh, listening to this stuff is interested in this, like if you want to, if you want like two great videos uh, that will explain, you know, great shit to play over certain chords. Uh, and and just improvisation in general, uh, Scott Henderson's two REH videos yes. uh, are some of the best that I've ever come across. He sells both of them on his website, I think, for twenty bucks, and they're they're worth their weight in gold. Amazing uh, pieces of educational material. But yeah, another one. I think the second one was uh, you know you have a chord progression you're kind of playing over, or you're just playing over one chord, and basically you draw from the like all the diatonic arpeggios in the key so let's say you're playing over a actually man let's just say you're playing over a, an, an a minor chord you're just just like a minor triad strummer strummer a minor chord and you say hey okay i like the sound and let's say you want the you know what you want the natural minor sound kind of what i would do i would say okay well a minor is the sixth chord in the key of c so then i would look at Every chord that exists in the C major scale, which would be, you know, C major, D minor, E minor, F, G, A minor, B diminished. And each one of those structures has a particular sound. Yeah. It has, it highlights a certain element and a certain sonority over that chord. If you're playing the A natural minor scale, you're just playing all that shit together in one scale. 
this way it kind of breaks up certain relationships of sound and says, oh, okay, here's the home bass triad. Okay, there's all the chord tones. Okay, here's the here's one step beyond that. Those are all extensions. And they, they, each one of them is a different sound. Yeah. It's a different element of that scale. It's a different thing to open up. Uh, so, so those were kind of the two harmonic ones. The rhythmic ones, uh, those are the ones I probably use the most. And I just, I talked about how to think about 16th notes. Let's get into that because... Uh... Because uh, actually, I wanted to compare notes between the two of you guys because, uh, well, I want to hear what you want to say, but then also I'd like to talk about the constant motion in funk playing and then compare it to Brown. Because Brown, I know that a lot of your riffs, you keep, you're keeping your hand, your right hand going consistently and it's more about the muting and where where you're accenting the left hand, which is actually very, very similar to how I've seen Carter play funk. I just want to say what what he just said, though, was exactly the same way that I write as well. <laughs> really? How so? Well, basically, he was talking about the different chordal tones that, that, well, basically the different colors, let's say, or different timbres that you can create over playing certain chords. And that's when, when I'm writing clean parts to my to my rhythmic parts, I'm often thinking, yeah, I can do it in the root here. I can make it sound sort of spacey and I'll probably go to the, say I was in a major key and I'd wanted it in Lydian, then that'd obviously be the fourth chord. And if I wanted it in Phrygian feel, third chord, you know, I think modally rather than in a, you know, the the normal scale way, I think of it in modes just because it's the way that I learn it. But it's very, very similar to how you're describing it. If you want a certain vibe, then it's easier just to sort of learn the sound of them um, for improvising. And that's kind of exactly the same way that I write. It's quite interesting. It's just a saying in a different way. Yeah. And, and, and basically, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, whether it's triads or seventh chords, you're exactly right. It's absolutely a modal concept. And, uh, actually like as a side note, something that I, every time I sit down with a guitar something I'm always drawn to doing, like I'll come up with some kind of line. Let's say it's like a nine note rip, you know, whatever. I'll sit there and I'll say, okay, what mode was I thinking about? I'd be like, okay, like C Dorian or C melodic minor or whatever. And then uh, this this has kept me busy for years. You can do it with chords too, but you, you, you take the lick and you say, okay, what did I play? You know, two, flat three, flat seven, five, root, flat seven, whatever. You know, whatever, yeah. you kind of work out whatever the intervals are. And then you think, okay, well, I was just in Dorian. That means there's six other versions of this lick. Yeah. <laughs> And it is one of the most goddamn shaming exercises. <laughs> it is. But also it gives you like, like each of them has their own character dependent on what is obviously played around it. And you can like, depending on obviously like what's going on with the bass or another guitar or something like that, it really converts the mood of what's going on. You can use all of them over one chord. Exactly. Or like all of a sudden you have... You you have a shape actually, and and like, you know, this is this is part of I guess what improvisers do. It's like we we take something, that, like one of the questions I always ask myself when I'm transcribing something or, or learning something. It's like okay, like I know I can I can vomit out this thing that I heard, but how do I how do I assimilate this into my vocabulary? How do I make this useful? How is it? How is this not just lick anymore? And it's like looking at the looking at the contour, the actual like composition of the line, the distance between each note, and say, okay, well, can I can I take this shape and apply it somewhere else? 
or can I take the, you know, or can I take this idea and take it through the whole scale? Then it's like, I'm paying, it's not a lick anymore. It's something that's like, okay, you know, this is, this is getting, uh, yeah, anyways, you know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. You're basically saying, try the different notes, not necessarily in different orders, but also try like swapping the octaves out of them and try doing it like more spread out as well. Like not just thinking in this little tiny, like say you're on two strings, like try extending it so that the same notes goes across the whole fretboard. Oh yeah. I mean, it can be, it could be anything as, exactly. in, as, as insane as you want to be. It's like, that makes it all the harder to. It's, it's, it's really interesting. The way that you improvise is the way that I write music. I'm just scared to improvise, I guess, to a degree, because I'd never tried to apply it in that sort of way. I always tried to polish it. <laughs> But you, you, you're kind of doing the same thing, but you're just applying these different, what, start as licks, then go to phrases, and then maybe even something more than that is part of your vocabulary of what you go to in certain situations, depending on what you're hearing coming from the rest of the band. Interesting. Yeah, and if you're lucky enough, you know, if, you're having, if I'm having a good day, uh, I can do some of those things in real time. And you can play them in orders and you're constantly thinking about what could come next based on where your hand position is on the neck. Ah, interesting. Right, because because like something that used to drive me insane when I was like taking, I was taking, there was one band I used to play with, I, I had to take like 23 guitar solos a night. And it was just, it was Whoa. exhausting. They were long. <laughs> they were all long, man. 23 seconds is too long. <laughs> no, no, man. And I refused to write anything because I was lazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, should have. That's what I should have learned back. Um, but yeah, man, I always felt like I was at the front of a train. Like a train that was about to mow you down or riding on the front of the train. But okay. like, like I was the dude with the shovel, shoveling coal into the engine. Oh, okay. And it was just like, okay, like I need more notes. I need more ammo. Like, oh shit. Okay. Like uh, more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. And it would always, uh, it's exhausting. It's horribly exhausting. And there's never enough stuff to play. So concepts like, uh, you know, like, like uh, Brown and I were just talking about, those are things to where you can take one idea and expand this shit all over the place. And it, in, instead of saying like, okay, well, I've got to come up with a new idea, a new idea, a new idea, a new idea. Then you're like, okay, what can I do with this one idea that can, you know, stretch out into more time? You know, it, it, interestingly enough, that's kind of how I write when I, well, when I was writing, that ended up being how I ended up getting to where I think the peak of my writing was. That's what I was doing. Right, music, uh, yeah. Originally, uh, I was just writing whatever came to mind, does it sound cool together? And ultimately that's still what you're doing is, does it sound cool together? But, uh, it became a very intentional thing to take one idea and then build a whole song, maybe well, one to three ideas, but build a whole song around what you can do with that idea. And yeah, the last Doth record, all the songs are kind of like that. They're as many things as you could extract from like one or two riffs. And maybe not in the exact same harmonic way that you guys are talking about, but definitely in the same conceptual way of like, exactly. how much can you get out of this? And I'll just bring up Muse again, because uh, they're my favorite rock <laughs> band that's on now around now like that's what they do with their songs that are so fucking awesome like it's usually like one or two ideas i was just gonna say the only difference between that and what 
uh, Carter is doing and improvisers in general is that they're doing it in real time. Well, yeah, yeah, that's, which is scary. It's scary as hell, isn't it? it but I forget who is who said this. It was a great jazz guitar player. I read this so long ago that I forget, but said something like, uh, improvisation is the manifestation of visceral musical knowledge or something, something like that. That's actually completely what it is, isn't it? It's such a great quote, though. I forget who, it was one of the dudes you listened to. It's one of your dudes. Um, and I just, I remember reading that and being like, yeah, that's what a great improviser does for sure. But from what I understand about improvisation, because I've never been one, that's actually not at all the world I come from. Like, you know, like classical background improvisation is not even dreamt of. So it's just not, it's just not even how I th ever would think about music, but the best improvisers are doing the same thing that the best writers are doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, feel, I, I, I tend to agree with you there. Uh, Wayne Krantz talks about uh, the difference between composition and improvisation. And like, he's one of the best improvisers out there. And it, at least for me, I'm a, I'm a big fan and he was definitely an influence on my playing, but to hear him kind of talk about both those things and, you know, shed light on how he sees each one of those is, is pretty fascinating. Cause I, I guess I, I kind of feel like even using a strategy of saying like, Hey, I have a line and uh, let me, let me exploit the other, you know, degrees of the scale and explode the structure through it. Like at that point, that's, that's almost just getting premeditated at that point. I'm kind of in a composition territory. I'm yeah. like, I'm, I'm, choos I'm choosing to do a certain thing. I'm not saying like, Oh, okay, well, like, how about this is the moment where I detune all my strings and then play anything? Like, that's a that would be maybe more improvisational or yeah, like, I don't know. Like, like I'm finding um, the older I get and the deeper I get into all of it. Uh, sometimes when I improvise, I'm coming at it from a compositional standpoint. Yeah, and sometimes when I compose, I'm coming at it from an improvisational standpoint, and it's it. I'd never thought to kind of put the two things in different camps, but uh, it's kind of interesting to do so. It, they definitely have their similarities, don't they? Because with improvisation, you obviously have, you know, a bank of licks that kind of they feel comfortable to play, and it almost seems like if you do get lost, it's a place to call home. Do you know what I mean? But the parachute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, but also at the same time, it requires a, an extreme understanding of the fretboard at the same time. Like if you're if you've practiced a lick that you've got in the key of E minor and then all of a sudden you're playing in in in, you know, a different key, like, you know, something that's completely different than what it is that you've practiced this in, you still need to have the visual understanding of where it's going to be for what you're trying to achieve. So even with a compositional element, there's still an element of surprise. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, and I will say like playing, uh, going to school for, for jazz and being around, um, so many jazz musicians that were, were fucking so much better than I was. They're just like people that absolutely destroyed me. I learned, I learned so much hanging out with people like that because they showed me a lot of things, a lot of different practice approaches. You know, like the, another one I do in that course and, and and I'm bringing it up now because of what you just mentioned. It's like, it's doing something in 12 keys. Uh, 
dramatically. <laughs> well, I mean, no, actually, you you jump around in fourths or fifths or minor thirds or like, uh, you know, you can you can kind of cycle through different keys in any way that you choose. But I tend to like I'll I'll take like fret one to fret six or you know fret five to fret ten. Just basically take a, a six fret area and you sit there and you pick something. You say like, okay, like uh, you know major triads or you know a, a minor a minor major seven arpeggio. You know anything. And you sit there and you say, okay, this is my playground. I can't go to the left of it. So it's first first fret of the sixth fret. I can't use any open strings. Can't go past the sixth fret. You can play, you can play just about anything that you can conceive of in all 12 keys in that area. And it's like, and the first time you do it, it's horrifying. It is so, I was so terrible at it. <laughs> and is this something you do in real time, in real life, or is this an exercise? This is like an exercise. Okay, I was going to say, that sounds scary to just try on a gig for the first time. I, I mean, you can get used to cycling things a certain way, you know? So, uh, <laughs> for example, like, uh, you know, what's the old picking exercise you and I used to do? It was like, uh, you know, we take like, okay, you take like a, a minor a minor triad arpeggio in threes or something you climb to the top you bump up a half step and you go down we just kind of oh yeah i remember that one <laughs> we're doing that it's like okay if you know if you got used to cycling that through like minor thirds i, for, I forgot all about that <laughs> but like the more you do that kind of stuff the more it can come out and and that is what's kind of exciting uh when you when you are improvising uh when you go somewhere you didn't think about and you're like oh shit okay this is kind of dangerous can i land this and like that's <laughs> that's that's where a lot of the fun happens so interestingly enough man when when writing like even though like i said improvising is never a thing for me when that same feeling of can i land this this is fun. Like this idea that this like uh, exercise I've been doing that expands my mind and my vocabulary would always work its way in. And actually my cure for writer's block was always to learn something new like that, but not learn some new like scale pattern or something. It would be learn something new that expands something harmonic or just something that's like that takes you to new places. If I would turn, if I would do the hard work to uh, learn an exercise like that, it would come out in my writing immediately. Like next day, suddenly there'd be something really cool that happened. Ben, I don't know if you guys uh, are either of you familiar with Derek Bailey. No, not me. No, I've not heard that name actually. He's a, he's a British uh, free jazz guitarist and he wrote a book in the eighties, but uh, the BBC did a really great documentary made a four-part documentary out of it in the 90s and it's called uh Derek bailey's on the edge and what he does he just follows uh improvised music from all over the world and there's some of the coolest shit ever on that documentary i think the, the first episode's got a he had like a baroque uh harpsichordist you know as he would improvise cadenzas they looked at john zorn's band in new york ah uh, john zorn <laughs> that's definitely getting wild and man, my favorite actually was this organist uh, who plays at this really famous uh, cathedral in Paris. I can't remember his name right now or the name of the cathedral, but he's he's the guy that replaced Messiaen at this church. And he's talking about, uh, he's 
essentially his his improvisation is like as any everybody comes in for the the service in Paris, uh, you know, he does like kind of a prelude on the organ. And the way they're talking about this, you're like, okay, this is gonna be, you know, some soft corral, you know, holy shit. It's gonna be <laughs> And man, he just starts thrashing the most in- insane atonal shit I've ever heard. It is just like, and there's just people sitting in a church as he's playing this devastating, insane music. <laughs> <laughs> is it like Schoenberg? <laughs> uh, man, it's, I'll send it to you. Please do. Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear it. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, but it's a great documentary. It's really cool. Okay. I have to watch this because, yeah, awesome. So let's talk about the 16th notes thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so 16th notes were the first, uh, it was kind of the first thing that I got interested in as far as placement was concerned. I noticed that all the funk parts and a lot of the, uh, a lot of the rhythm guitar parts in the music that I was listening to were like 16th note based. So if you're listening to like Herbie Hancock records or Michael Jackson records or, you know, D'Angelo or some of this other kind of stuff that, that was kind of the grid where stuff was landing. Pretty much in the course, I just talk about kind of how to grab them or just what what each one of them are. So if you've got a tempo like this, kind of snapping into this, I don't know if you can hear it. But, oh, yes. you know, so one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a, and each one of those little, each one of those little spots, you just kind of get to a point where you can just snatch it. So like one, two, three, four, E, 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 and, and, and. And, uh, 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 that that was the hardest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. So essentially, like, if you kind of have that grid at your disposal, it's like you you become hyper aware of kind of what your timing is, number one. Also, if you have an idea, it gives you 16 different places to put it, and they all feel different. Very, very different. Very, very different. Extremely different. Well, which is funny. It's kind of like the drummer thing, right? Yep. Like we were talking about the different drummers earlier, and... I feel like that's some of what's different. They just place things differently. Like they all have killer time, but it feels so different because of some of the things that they emphasize or, you know, what they put forward. Yeah. The accent points. But just to be clear, your right hand is still going the whole time in the 16th notes. What you're grabbing are the ands or the es. Yes and no. It kind of depends on what you're doing. And and it's and like and if you're kind of wondering uh you know blanket kind of rhythm guitar practice stuff it's like yes. I used to I used to kind of think that everything was always moving that the right hand was churning constantly. And I think for for some styles that is if you look at somewhere like like Nile Rodgers his, his right hand just like it's just going and his muting is so insane. Yeah, that uh, that's that's where all that detail in his playing is is happening. Uh, but then, like, I watched some videos of like, you know, some of James Brown's guys, and those dudes are moving absolutely as little as possible. Like they're just you know, with none of the ghost notes in between. So, so I mean, both are both are useful. Both have a place, uh, and both sound different. Like in some cases, I feel like ghost notes get in the way of the rest of the rhythm. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. And I, I tend to notice it more with the drums. I just feel like, okay, I'm, I'm encroaching too much on like what the drums are doing. Or I'm just getting, I'm taking up too much. So you know what's interesting is what you said before, um, that you know that you've got pocket when you're playing by yourself and it makes you want to dance. So what I rem- So I've never actually seen you play with a drummer. I've only seen you play 
by yourself or with another guitar player. And so, yeah, I've never seen you play with anybody but another guitar player or mainly by yourself. And so in those days, you were keeping that, maybe you were keeping that 16th note thing going with your right hand because there was no drummer. Because I remember we always called you like the, like a human, like, I mean, all drummers are human. We had a term for you. I forget what it is, but it was something, it was something about how like you were a rhythm section uh, Mm -hmm. on your own. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, probably, probably back then, and I mean, if I'm still playing by myself, like, yeah, that stuff does happen because you're trying to, you're trying to fill all that stuff in, you know, like, and that's, and that's stuff I'm hearing, you know, like I hear the, I hear those subdivisions and I hear those other things. And so, yeah, but if it's just one of us, or if I'm like, if somebody like Amal is, is playing along with me, it's like, you want to try and, uh, I guess you want to try and give people that are playing, you know, on top of what you're doing, you want to give them a bed. You know, you want to give yep. them something to feel like they can sit on. That's that's how, that's how I would write rhythms for his leads too, was try to create the best stage possible upon which something great can happen. Yeah. And, and in, in some, in some cases, and I think, you know, when I would fill all that stuff up, it was trying to create, it was just like, okay, man, like, here's how I'm feeling the subdivisions. And, you know, hopefully this is enough for you to feel comfortable, you know, or to, you know, kind of embody this groove or know where the time is, you know, or know where your time is. The reason that it was so striking to me, though, is coming from a metal background, like, you know, uh, in uh, now metal has evolved, but a lot of metal involved just the 16th notes going constantly in uh, with the right hand or a lot of the time. So I just I just saw such a similarity in the amount of notes going on, just such a different approach of Brown. I see you doing that kind of shit all the time where your right hand keeps going with the 16th, even if it's not like a quote unquote 16th note metal riff. It might not be the accent. You've got a very like funk ish kind of thing going on it's all the different expressions that you can do with it like even with the layer of distortion you know i mean like there's other accents and expressions that you can do with that timing like so if you go like you know say you instead of hitting the note you just hit your hand on the string that creates a certain kind of expression you know or a scratch kind of like you're in funk. That's another kind of expression. And it's exactly what Carter said. It's like the ghost notes on the drums, the Michael Jackson breaths, and it's giving it this almost really dynamic pull for the riff. Like, and I'll go a bit deeper than that. Like, I'll separate it so that I have what I consider, I call it the subgroove, and it's like the bottom notes of the riff. You know how my riffs jump about onto the higher strings and the lower strings. And if... Sometimes you'll find it that the lower strings by themselves just makes a really cool groove anyway. And it, yeah, basically it's just building on that. Did you have a good example? Yes, Denial. The, I'm looking the first up. riff of Denial, it actually does the subgroove in the song in a different key in the middle. Hold on, I'm just, I want to listen to it real quick just to know, because I don't know if I've heard that song. So Monuments, Denial? Yeah, there's a playthrough of me doing it. Look at that. 
Okay. Yeah, I just want to hear it real quick. I hear you though, Brad. Did like it's here. It's, it's kind of wild to dig into the. Uh, I don't know all the different kinds of like articulations and things. Like that's that's a whole universe. Exactly. And when you mentioned Michael Hedges, there goes the the universe to the next universe. <laughs> oh yeah. Dude, ah yeah. Or like Ted Green, man. You ever heard Ted Green? No, I haven't. Link me. He's horrifying, horrifying chord guy. And it's, yeah, it's just shocking. Anyways, I'll shut up and listen to this. <laughs> yeah, God, that, that riff is so cool. Yeah, I love it. So like the subgroup of that, the bass is playing it in the first part, which is the da-dun, 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 da-dun. And then you have all these little articulations, which can go from scratches to arpeggiated chords, um, to slides, there's loads of different things in that one, but it can go further as well with scratches, which, you know, there's many examples of that in monument songs. The position of the right hand for the mute, if it's further back, it's going to create that more woofy kind of palm mute. Whereas if you go further forward, it's more like a metallic mute. And all of these different expressions can be what creates that, the push of the riff, almost like ghost notes on drums. Say you've got, you know, you program a drum beat and you just do the snare on three, simple beat drums. But the moment that you start adding ghost notes to those drums and then the, the, the pedal hat, it creates this cool cooler groove. Do you know what I mean? So I'm just trying to fill in not every space, but creating a subgroove within the groove. That's basically, I can't, it's so difficult to explain what it is because it's so personal. Do you know what I mean? It's like, in a way. I love the term subgroove. <laughs> Explains it pretty perfectly. Yeah, I mean, that's a great vocabulary word to kind of just be like, oh, yeah, okay. Well, shit's kind of sitting, you know, everything's sitting up here, but yeah. this shit is bubbling. Exactly, yeah. The subgroup is like the simple, you know, the I'd say it's the baseline of the riff. And then everything else is like the main groove because they're, they're both kind of different. Like, obviously, they come from the same, I guess, the same thing. It's the same riff, but it feels completely different because space feels different to articulations. And that's kind of how I see the, well, the 16th note thing, the way that you were talking about, I feel it the same way, but I'm trying to make it jump about constantly. <laughs> Man, uh, and I had a, I had a tour one time that explained, uh, he said, okay, like think of the guitar, th think of the guitar strings like a drum set. And so like your, your sixth string and fifth string were kind of like the kick drum uh, strings one and two were the snare. And then uh, the middle two strings were the hi-hat. He was trying to explain to me, I think at the time of just like, okay, like here's ways that you can create grooves that, that basically function like what you're talking about to where it's not just like, oh, here's one chord that I'm just going to slam, you know, constantly with my right hand. It's like, oh no, okay, it's almost like three parts working together. Exactly. And, and obviously you've got the different octaves, so that really helps with that as well. Like, yeah, it, it, it's very, very similar, isn't it? Like, <laughs> and it also like, we, we had Mike Dawes on the podcast and he does it, you familiar with that guy? Mike Dawes. Dude, because if you're into Michael Hedges, you should check out Mike Dawes. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I earmarked that one. Yeah, because I, I wanted to listen to that. Dude, he's phenomenal. It's insane. I feel like he's like a modern day next generation Michael Hedges, kind of. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. It's like, it's like Andy McKee and Anton Dufour um, and guys like that. You know, the, the really percussive style of acoustic. But... He's phenomenal. Yeah, he's phenomenal. I'll check him out for sure. It's interesting to me how how similar you guys think about rhythm. That's uh, that's kind of why I wanted to get you guys talking. Actually, 
But if you think about it, music is just the same 12 notes. Yeah, but not everyone thinks about rhythm. You know, guitar players don't think about rhythm that much. They, they don't. And it's, I think it's kind of sad. Not enough. I think a lot more do now than used to. Maybe, I mean, shit, I don't know. I think like... Well, the internet has helped. I would say certain certain genres of music think about they rhythm is more of a priority than others maybe like i might go that far i think but uh i mean yeah man there's always people out there that are thinking about badass rhythmic shit well yeah of course i just mean that i feel like when around when we met or something and for a while there thinking about rhythm was not something i mean you're the only guitar player i knew who really thought about it really like made a thing. I'm not saying you're the only one in the world or anything, but like out of my circle, you were the only one who really prioritized that. And man, I maybe maybe the reason that was was uh I was listening to R and B. Makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And, yeah. and it's just like, yeah, okay, like that. I'd actually like in 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 that kind of music that is like lead guitar. You're just like, oh shit, listen to that part, man. That's so cool. Like it's still, it's still out front. It's still, you know, it's definitely a feature. You know what I mean? It's like, if you listen to, if you listen to like a James Brown tune and there's just, there's this sick guitar part that's churning throughout the whole thing. You're just like, man, that's badass. That's awesome. I have to learn that. <laughs> and with that style, I think that's the buy-in. That's just like, that's the buy-in. You're like, okay, I've got to, I've got to be able to hold these shapes and, you know, get my right, get my right hand doing X, Y, or Z at the right time. But yeah, man, I don't know. It's a, it's a wild thing. I think, I think what it is, is that when people pick up the guitar, that I, I see like sort of three types of guitar players. The, the people that want to just pick up an acoustic and play Wonderwall style songs to their mates around a campfire. The second type of guitar player that I see a lot of is the shredder. It's the ones that the only thing that they envision about the instrument is playing as fast as possible. And then the third type of person is the the realization, I guess. And it doesn't matter what genre of music they're in. They want to improve the rhythmic section of what they what the other two have you know they started as one of the other two but then they went a little bit further like with with lead players i mean you need rhythm to have good phrasing like this the reason why you know in the metal world joe satriani and steve Vai got so appreciated is because they were able to create these really vocal melodies with their guitar playing and anyone that you see that is a good guitar player that you can say, oh, that guy's great. It's because they have the rhythmic thing down with their phrasing. It might not be in the same application as what we're doing, but the rhythmic stuff still needs to be there because that's the only way to create phrases that are memorable, the space between the notes, isn't it? <laughs> so I think Pat Metheny said this once, but he, he was just like, I can't think of a great player that has bad time. Yeah. It's it just kind of, it's just kind of alien. You know, it doesn't, I, I mean, I got to say with the, with the guitar too, it's, I mean, it's an interesting thing because quite often we're in situations where there's like another guitarist, right? Yeah. So like, you know, we're kind of trading those responsibilities back and forth and uh, I'll never forget how shitty I felt <laughs> when it was the other dude's turn to like blow a solo. And I just like, 
you know, didn't have any of my rhythmic rhythmic stuff together. It was just like, oh man, like, damn, that's not cool. Yeah. You got to be there for the other dude. Exactly. Yeah. And also as well is that we, when we also start playing guitar, we're just so focused on being, you know, the guy that goes for the solo rather than thinking we can, I, I think it almost is a case of arrogance in a way where we want to have the limelight and when the realization happens and you realize that, ah, that's only for 10 to 20 seconds of the song. Man, it's definitely self-centered. I don't know if I'd call it the full-on arrogance, but it's, uh, it's, it's definitely ego. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is ego, but it's like, yeah, like we're all involved. We're involved in what we're doing and we're just like, yeah, this is cool. I want to keep doing it. Exactly. And I think that you get to that point and you really like it, but then you try and just sort of develop it a little bit further. Because I don't think really anyone starts the guitar to be a rhythm guitar player. It's very few people, isn't it? No, but that's kind of the, uh, I guess that's the first thing you get shown. It's not. I don't think that anyone really teaches rhythm. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, it's never been taught properly. Like who told, who taught you to do the the stuff you do? Records. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Once I, um, I think once I had the means to things. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Like that's a quarter note. Like that's a rest. That's yeah. a 16th note. Then it, then it's like, okay. Like these were things I could like kind of feel or sense, but now it's like, Oh, that's one of these. And it's happening here instead of there. Like what well, I think once I could kind of label it, it, yeah. it made more sense. It's, it's, it's almost like learning theory, isn't it? But it's just like a different where, it's the way that drummers learn it because obviously drummers don't have many notes. <laughs> they figured it out, man. And like, man, you know what I sucked at for years? Yep. was counting. I was yep. horrible at counting, man. It was, it was shocking. I was just like, why do I keep getting lost in drum solos like, when <laughs> these guys are going totally apeshit? It's like, oh, like, yeah, I'm losing. Like, my counting sucks. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was like, that was totally it. <laughs> it's so weird, isn't it? Because I, that, I, dude, I, I completely sucked at it up until the age of 17, maybe 18. And it was, it was actually listening to my sugar that made me realize just how bad I was at it. Cause I couldn't understand it. I literally had no idea what was going on. And I put, I kept putting the record on repeat. I was like, right. This is really good. I don't know why it's really good, but there's something really good about this and I need to understand it. And after about three months of listening to the album at the time, which was a, an album called Nothing from 2001, I want to say. And after three months, it was like, it clicked and I felt it for the first time. And uh, it was quite fascinating that it took sugar to make me realize rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, they, uh, they don't make it easy. They didn't, no. But then again, it's, it, it's very similar to your writing approach as well because they write in little phrases. It's just constructed in different points of the bar and it's nearly always in 4-4. Four, four. Like I hear that being more of a thing as that band has been so huge. Yeah. And uh, it's, man, it, it winds up being some really fascinating music because it's like, it's kind of just looking at phrasing differently. Like instead, like we used to kind of be like, okay, like most riffs felt like, 
okay, like here's like a two bar phrase or like a four bar phrase yeah. or something yeah. like that. And we could kind of like, all right, man, I can chew on that. I can get down with that. But now it's like, like some of these bands, they're looking at some shit that's like 32 bars away. Yeah. It's like, and it just hits you like a bomb. Yeah. You're just like, oh, damn, that's where we were. Exactly. I guess the same thing probably happens in jazz, right? Sure. That man, well, I mean, that that's like, that's what like great drummers and bass players and, you know, piano players do. Like all the drummers I love to play with. It's weird, man. They just, in, in some ways, they're trying to kind of throw off your perception of what, you know, like, it's not like a dude just playing time. No. It's like, it's like a dude encouraging you to go off the cliff. <laughs> and as long as I'm counting hard enough, and, you know, as long as I knows where, as long as I know where it is, he knows where it is. Yeah. You know, or she knows where it is. You know, we, we all trust, we trust each other that we're going to line up. And when it does, it's awesome. And when it doesn't, like, uh, so adjusts and hey, man, that's uh, we'll get them next time. We'll get it next <laughs> That's so terrifying to me, but I totally understand the mindset of why you would want to do something like that. I mean, that's what music is, isn't it? It's the constant evolution of change, um, constantly making things more, well, I wouldn't say more complicated, but trying and experimenting with new things. Yeah. And I mean, man, something that wound up being a, a big part of it for me or one of the reasons I really still love to do it, it's the camaraderie of it. And yeah. it's like the camaraderie, like I love the camaraderie of playing improvised music with people. Like, cause when it's, cause when it's on, I, I mean, it's the same kind of camaraderie that you get with a band yeah, with a bunch of people uh, that you actually, I guess the, the, the real point is like playing music with people that you trust yeah. is, is incomparable. It's incomparable to any other experience. It's just like, I don't know something, there's uh, something just unbelievable about it. You know what? I think that's a perfect place to end this. Because that is so beautiful, isn't it? Playing music with people that you trust. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. Damn, John, what a pleasure to meet you, man. Pleasure to meet you too as well, man. And I can't believe you're in England and like AL's never introduced us or anything like that. Oh man, well, we had a, we had a reason now. Exactly, yeah. You're only four hours away from me, maybe five. I mean, dude, uh, once things calm down a bit, yeah, I'd love to come meet you for a beer or, you know, yeah, if you ever want to trade shit. I am, I am down. You can show me all the licks. Let's, uh, let's, let's do it, man. <laughs> figure the shit out. Exactly. <laughs> we'll both become more, employ- more unemployable together. <laughs> I've been working on all this great shit from John, man. No one wants to hire me. What's going on? It's like- <laughs> You, you can try and do yours in a funk setting, uh, what you learn from me, and I'll try and do what you show me in a metal setting. No, nah, man. Yeah, yeah. I got I to gotta ask you some shit about your right hand, for sure. I got to okay. get thinking about that stuff. So We'll do it. All right, man. Well, John, appreciate you. Well, great episode. Fuck my internet again. Uh, sorry <laughs> to anyone listening who's noticed that I've been having internet problems. Uh uh, it's been an interesting situation because of the hurricanes that hit the U.S. recently. I didn't get hit by them, but we got storms that were a runoff from them. And a small tree came down exactly where the Internet goes into my house. And it's not it's not simple because the house is basically built into the side of a very steep hill and it's just complicated so it's not like you could just go to like starbucks or some shit to use internet (laughs) so i've been in a hotel so i can keep working but as you know hotel internet resets every day and just so happens to be resetting during our fucking podcasts (laughs) so 
It's all good. Yeah. I'll let yeah. you off this it once, is. but I think instead Thank of blaming you. the hurricane, we should just blame America. That's fine. <laughs> That's fine. But man, Carter is awesome. Like for people who haven't heard him, you really should just check him out. Uh, he's seriously one of the best guitar players I've ever met in my entire life. And I've known him like 23 years, which is nuts too. He's insane. I watched some videos in the interim between your internet turning off and us doing this ending. And um, yeah, it's insane. It's absolutely insane how good he is. And you can tell too by just the way he talks about it. Yeah, he's like completely modest. He's like one of those, you know, you know, we spoke to Kiko and we've spoken to, you know, Andy James and all of these people that are really good at their instrument. And you instantly can tell by the way that they talk about it. It's they're not arrogant about it. They're just like, they just want to talk about it because they're so stoked about it. <laughs> yep. And I think that it's their whole life. Exactly. And when you get people like that, it's like, you just know that they're going to be insane at their niche of music. And, um, and he's sick. He's sick. And I think it's good for people to see that, like, it's entirely possible to be just a guitar player for a living. Um, you can figure it out, even if uh, even if you're not a dude in some band. Like you don't have to be in Megadeth or Periphery in order to be a professional guitar player. Like he's been a professional guitar player for a long time now, uh, and it's a totally doable thing. If you, you know, it's hard, but uh, it's a totally doable thing, I, and I. I think that a lot of people have the impression that it's like either you're a rock star or it's nothing. I think that's down to ego for that mentality, though. I think so, too. I think that with if you really enjoy the instrument and just want to play, then just being a rad guitar player and a sick dude and you'll land all the gigs that, you know, Carter has. And not to say that anyone could do what he does. That's, you know, completely making it sound like he's not a good guitar player. But you know what I mean? Like, if you're sick at your instrument in your particular niche, you're a good dude to be around, then you can achieve entirely what Carter has, for sure. And he's both. Yeah. It's impressive watching him play in real life. I've never, I've never really experienced a guitar player who can play alone and just sound like a full band. It's fucking yeah. crazy. Like, <laughs> people need to hear this guy do his thing um but but yeah like if you're good enough and you're cool enough to be around it and your ego doesn't tell you that you have to be like either in the biggest band in the world or it's not worth it and you just love the instrument and you're talented that matters too it's a viable career path Completely viable. And he has a wife and two kids. And obviously, yeah. if he can still do that, that means that anything's possible. Yeah, exactly. I just think it's a good thing for people to, for people to see. I think that there's some very strange misconceptions about what it, what it takes. However, the skill set is a little different than necessarily what we would think of for, you know, heavier bands and stuff, obviously. I think that uh, heavy music requires a very specific, specialized skill set that doesn't necessarily apply across the board 
so you would need to widen your horizons, of course, and like learn a lot more about different genres, learn how to read, learn how to read charts, be able to improvise more, I think. But at the same time, we know plenty of guitar players in metal too, who are professional guitar players. Yeah. Professional guitar players in different genres of music as well. And it just shows how transferable the skill set really is. Like, yeah. Like, so that's actually one of the reasons I wanted to bring him on. I mean, I wanted to bring him on because he's an incredible guitar player, but, uh, with riff hard putting such an emphasis on rhythm guitar playing, well, I wanted to bring on the person who really opened my, uh, understanding of rhythm guitar playing first before anybody. Um, it was him. And, uh, like, I actually, th I figured that the two of you would connect because I felt like you guys think alike, which seems like you do now that you've spoken. Uh, it was, that's what I thought was going to happen, that you guys, I just had this like hunch that, that even though you guys do very different things, that you have a similar type of understanding of music and the rhythmical side of it. Definitely. I mean, it's, as I say, it's all transferable completely. I mean, um, as he was saying earlier in the episode, it was like each style of music has its own set of sort of parameters to a degree. Obviously not all styles, but, you know, let's say the master of the style. When I'm saying, you know, like rock has certain things that go with it, like a distorted guitar and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, I know that's not a particularly good example, but like Bossa Nova has a certain sound and Latin has a certain sound and, you know, to do certain types of jazz, it has certain parameters. And if you can play your instrument, then working out those parameters and applying them is a case of just changing mindset. The skill set is already there. And the, the, the sort of mindset behind it as well is already there because, you know, metal does take its, you know, its style from multiple other styles of music you know, Meshuggah influenced by uh, Alan Holdsworth, which is jazz. All the great metal bands that we think of today, Metallica also had their influences in things outside of metal. So it's it wasn't completely surprising to me that he thinks of rhythm in the same way, but it's good just for that reassurance that if I really wanted to go and do a funk band, then, that maybe I wouldn't be too far away. <laughs> I don't think so, man. And I think a lot of this, this stuff in the downpicking gym on the Riff Hard site is the kind of stuff that I've heard him doing just except with like a light pick and across multiple strings, you know, like in a funk way, yeah. but like the types of patterns and stuff and the displacements, all that stuff, it's the same. Yeah, it's completely the same. It's all about feeling the different beats of the bar. And in the downpicking gym, we cover that. It's not only about becoming this monster rhythm guitar player with a downpick ability, but it's also about understanding the accent points of different points of the bar. And there's loads of exercises for that, you know, just feeling different time signatures and the different accent points and basically just expanding your vocabulary with rhythm, which is you know, something that a lot of us definitely uh, forsake. I definitely did at the beginning of when I played guitar. Well, I mean, it's the foundation of all music, I think. If uh, if you don't have rhythm down, 
nothing else is going to work. No, it's not. Like <laughs> It's the vehicle, the foundation, I guess. It depends on how you look at it. But uh, I almost see it as like uh, the vehicle which drives the car, or the foundation upon which the house is built. It completely is. I mean, even if you look at lead guitar playing phrasing, the reason that you fall in love with certain lead guitar players or vocalists is the phrasing of the notes and that falls into rhythm. And if you don't have a good sense of rhythm down, then you're not going to be able to create those memorable melodies that you fell in love with so much. Or even play them in time. Or play them in time. Yeah, that's very, (laughs) that's a very important factor as well. Yeah, it helps. Having recorded many lead guitar players, I can tell you what you're hearing on a lot of modern recordings isn't what actually happened. No, that that's called Pro Tools. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's called pain. <laughs> For you, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So if you want to up your rhythm game and really take it to another level and a level that is transferable outside of metal to... Uh, Go to riffhard.com, check out the down-picking gym and uh, get that right hand going. Yeah, the most important hand. That's right, unless if you're left-handed. <laughs> unless you're left-handed, then it's, yeah, the other hand. <laughs> yeah, don't assume. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, I'll see you next time. See you next week, man. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.